What's up, fantasy nerds? Welcome back to another episode of the Inking Out Loud podcast. I'm your host, Rob Santos, and I'm joined, as I always am, by my co-host, Drew McCaffrey. How's it going, everybody? And joining us today for our patron-recommended episode are returning special guests, one from our episodes on uh, A Wrinkle in Time, The Wheel of Time, and Aaron Alston's Star Wars novels. Lauren McCaffrey's with us today. What's up, Lauren? Hey, guys. And, as well, we have returning special guest, another one from our patron-recommended episode on Roger Zelasny's The Chronicles of Amber. Alan Keeler is with us again today. Alan, what's up, dude? Thanks for coming. My pleasure, as always. So... Boys and girls, today we're finally digging into a long-awaited listener episode, Frank Herbert's Dune. I, myself, had a hard time a little bit. Nah, I won't say a hard time. I'll say I had an odd time reading this one. So let's get right into it with our weekly recap from Drew. My man, what the heck happened in this book? Yeah, so uh, as Rob mentioned, this is a uh, patron-requested episode. This one was courtesy of Joseph McFarland. Uh, thank you, Joseph. Thank you, Joseph. Uh, this is definitely a, a very popular book and one that uh, I've tried to read in the past. And, uh, I mean, it's probably, probably been 13 years since I tried to read this book the first time and did not finish it. So uh, it, it was nice to have that little... Uh, encouragement from our uh, our patreon supporters to to get us to cover this one but yeah this is a classic science fiction novel that follows uh house atreides i'm i'm gonna apologize right now i'm probably gonna mangle a lot of the pronunciations and names here um <laughs> you and me both there bud. but yeah uh, uh house atreides the main characters principally are, are jessica uh and her son paul um, and then Jessica's not husband, very emphatically not husband, but the Duke, uh, Leto? Leto? Let, Leto. Leto? I just yeah. say Leto after, you know, Jared Leto. Well, yeah, that's. Well, they've been saying Leto in the, in the audiobook. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. How did I not pick up on that? Because yeah. I was also listening to the audiobook at points. Huh. Yeah. Well, uh, anyway, so this this picks up, you know, we're in a you know, far future spacefaring human civilization and uh, House Atreides has kind of a, a fiefdom on the planet Caladan, but because of some political maneuvering in the Empire, they are given the gift of Arrakis, or Dune, as the planet is sometimes called, and it is a very important planet in the Empire because it is the sole uh, origin of the spice melange which is a crazy, crazy valuable, you know, kind of geriatric drug, helps prolong life and things like that. Uh, but uh, previously, Arrakis was the fief of uh, House Harkonnen, which was the principal rival of House Atreides. And so this is kind of like a big deal, moving and shaking the uh, power alignments of all the different houses in this empire. But the entire thing is a trap. Uh, the Emperor is working with House Harkonnen to kind of uh, destabilize and destroy House Atreides. They have a traitor in the midst, Dr. Yui, who is uh, working unwillingly for House Harkonnen because his wife was captured by them. And he helps betray House Atreides. The Duke is killed and uh, the Harkonnens take over on Arrakis once again, but Jessica and Paul escape into the desert wilderness where they're taken in by the Fremen, who are a, a kind of 
mysterious desert people and they have a bunch of prophecies and things and it turns out that Paul is the subject of one of these prophecies and he kind of grows to leadership with them and turns them into the kind of fighting force they need to overthrow the Harponids. And at the end of this book, with, uh, with Paul's help and with Jessica's help, they do indeed overthrow the Harkonnens. Baron Harkonnen is killed. Uh, his heir apparent, Fade, is also killed by Paul. The Emperor is forced to uh, kind of recognize House Atreides as a power again, give them uh, rulership over Arrakis, and he is also forced to give his oldest daughter in marriage to Paul. So... That's that's the most succinct I can do for a synopsis on this without just going way into the weeds. <laughs> yeah, this one's hard to do, I'd imagine, to, to summarize. I'm really glad that you are the one summarizing these, particularly during books like this, where I had a, I had a hell of a time. Um, so, you know, first and foremost, particularly starting with our style discussion, we absolutely need to get the elephant out of the proverbial room so we can dig into what we like with myself. The elephant, of course, being this third-person omniscient narrating style it for me it very nearly killed the book but i want to ask how you guys felt about it who, who do you want I, to go first i didn't i'll start i didn't have as much trouble as i thought i might with it but i think that's because my mind works that way a little bit it wasn't as it wasn't as much of a stretch as i thought it would be but there were definitely times where it was confusing where i thought he moved to different heads at odd times and and it w left me wondering like hold 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 up whose head is this it could be one of two people and i'm not entirely sure thinking this thought here no yeah. and, <laughs> and you're even, a first, even yeah. in the audiobook like so so i i both read and listened same and like e even in the audiobook there were times where the narrator would take over and I'm, hold on, I'm lost, you know, which, which who is this? <laughs> right, yeah, context is so necessary. You actually have to re, you actually have to rewind, or if you're reading the book on physical, like I was intermittently, you have to go back a few paragraphs and make sure, it's, oh yeah, okay, so we're in this person's head now as opposed to that person's head, even though we're still in this the exact same scene. Like, I, I to me, it, it did not, it did not land for me. I did not appreciate the style. Or I should say, I did not enjoy the style, but I could still appreciate it for reasons that I'll get into later. But uh, Drew, Alan, the omniscient narrating style, how'd you feel about it? Either one of you? I'll let Drew go first. Alan? Oh, okay. Well, so I, I have some complicated feelings on this. For one thing, like, yes, technically this is a, this is a third person, oh. person omniscient narrator, God. but it... It doesn't really read like a typical third-person omniscient narrator. What it really reads as is a bunch of different third-person close snippets where we'll have just... Like, like it, it didn't flow the way a third-person omniscient narrator normally flows. Yeah. I would be reading and, and I would get a, you know, a head hop and it would be in a manner that felt like there should have been a page break or a line break rather indicating we're jumping to another character's point of view the kind of thing you would get in a Brandon Sanderson book or a Robert Jordan book or a George R. R. Martin book or you know something like that because of the the closeness 
of the narrative voice, it wasn't. It didn't feel like an omniscient narrator looking down and and describing what everybody's thinking and feeling. It felt like you were in their heads and then moving in a third person limited point of view. And then suddenly it wasn't limited, and it was third person limited in somebody else's head. And that was what frustrated the most uh, frustrated me the most about this. It, it was not a traditional omniscient narrator and and i'm going into this book i remember trying to read it like i said like 13 years ago or so and getting frustrated with the the point of view scheme and and i couldn't really remember what it was specifically about it that frustrated me because i've read omniscient narrators and enjoyed books with omniscient narrators and and i was like why what was it about dune that frustrated me so much about it. And now, having read it again, I understand it's not because it's an omniscient narrator, it's because it feels like a bunch of third-person limited points of view with no delineations or line breaks or scene breaks going from head to head. It just happens, sometimes mid-paragraph. Yeah. So, Alan, being the only one of us, I assume the only one of us who's actually read this before. Yeah, yeah I've, uh, I've read this book at least a half dozen times. And the reason why I've read it a half dozen times is because I've read through it enough times and been like, what the f*** is happening here? <laughs> <laughs> fair enough, so, fair enough. So I, I totally see where you guys are coming from, having read this the first time. But having read it, I think this is probably, realistically, this is probably getting pretty close to like eighth time that I've, re I've read this book. Damn. Now I, I know what's happening. So I don't have problems with the, with the skipping back and forth because I know what's going to happen. Like, Paul's going to say this, and now Stilger's going to say that. And, like, I, I know what's going to happen. So when I read through it, I didn't... I wasn't bogged down by the garbage that went along with it being... <laughs> what, what feels like... Like, it's not poorly organized. It's just organized in a way that we don't understand. Like, if you don't know the Dewey Decimal System and you go into a library, you have no idea what's going on. But, then if, but if you understand the Dewey Decimal System, then you're like, oh, okay, I know what's happening. Once it gets explained mm -hmm. to you, like Fair if you read enough. this book again, you'd get through it and you'd be like, oh, I, I, I know what happens. And you, you're able to pick out a lot more well, information. But I find that, that if you're trying to slog through, like, like with the switching back and forth, like so many important things get left behind. And what Drew is saying about like the whole idea of it, about it being third-person limited, when you play like 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 Lego Jurassic Park, which my son Jack, who's five, is playing now, you switch from one <laughs> character to another to another to do a whole bunch of different things, and then you've got the narrator, and then you you switch back and forth. If you if you're not following it well, like if you're not slowly reading it, it's dreadful because it, it's mm. it's you're trying to swim in sand. It's not gonna work. Yeah, you tell so you tell Jack I, that his uncle Rob's gonna have to have, have to have a very important discussion with him about his narrative style. <laughs> I'll, I'll pass it along. <laughs> Sorry, Drew, go ahead. I feel like I cut you off there. Yeah, I will say, I didn't have a hard time following the story or the events of it. I was just annoyed by the way the point of view worked. Yeah. Uh, okay. it, certainly, it is a pretty involved story. If, you know, this isn't, this isn't the kind of book that I would recommend to somebody who's just getting into science fiction or fantasy. Uh, you know, if... I, I felt glad that I have a lot of experience with large, complex, 
you know, narratives, things like the Wheel of Time and A Song of Ice and Fire and mm -hmm. the Cosmere and things like that, mm -hmm. uh, where where throwing a bunch of names at me and a and a Byzantine political situation mm -hmm. that doesn't phase me the way it might phase a, a brand new science fiction reader who's mm -hmm. like maybe just used to Star Wars, mm -hmm. you know, something like that. <clears throat> uh, I, yeah, <laughs> I think I think that. Yeah, actually, Drew says don't start with Dune. <laughs> yeah, I think that highlights a really good point as well, though, is, is that that both of you guys are are well read and read a lot of yeah. stuff. Like you guys, more so on Drew's side. You you guys go through through books like the scanner does at like the national libraries where they're digitizing. <laughs> books. You guys you guys read an incredible amount of literature, and especially like like with the skill sets that you guys have developed on there. Like, I'm, I am by far an amateur reader. You guys are professional in terms of that. So when I look at it, I look at it like, oh, professional being like oh, I've done this a few, I've done this a few times, so it's okay. And you guys are like, oh, yes, well, you could throw 400 characters. I mean, I don't have an issue with it. But for the, for the rest of us mere mortals, yeah, reading Dune the first time. <laughs> what? No, so, who's the bad guys? Like, no, Jesus. But for me. Like, I think the first time I read it, I thought Jessica was the bad guy for half of the book. Because I just was, I was so confused. Oh, you so, were on the, okay, you were on, on the train I mean, there. I well, could see how, how, like, that could happen with the reader. Like, if you miss one key line in, like, chapter three, suddenly Jessica does look like the bad guy, mm -hmm. you know? <laughs> yeah. No, for me, it was just, it was, it, this, this, going, you know, back into this omniscient style here, it was just, for me, very, very jarring. I, I suppose, it, I agree with Drew a lot there. And for me, I have to look at this introspectively. I suppose it has a lot to do with my age. I'm only 28 years old, even as of the recording of this episode. You know, I, having grown up with 90s and 2000s fiction, like Robert Jordan, like Terry Goodkind, uh, if I want to bring him up, even simpler authors like J.K. Rowling, for me, like, I had grown so accustomed to this third-person, limited point of view that this book almost read wrong. It almost felt amateur, except for the fact that it very clearly was not. As we kept jumping from one head to another in the same scene, line to line, I, I, have to, I had to keep stopping, taking a breath, and reminding myself that this is just perhaps more of, I, I don't want to say outdated style, because I'm pretty sure there are still books, obviously there are going to be books still released with the same style. There are, there are, but it just rubbed me the wrong way. At no point during the book did I get used to this omniscient style like I was hoping for. There's a moment when Paul wakes up, and I quote, He met the open stare of total blue from that shout-out mapes. But a minute later, he asks her who she is. It, it, it ruined a lot of the pace and the mystique uh. for me, particularly with characters like Dr. Ewan, uh, who, who was clearly spelled out as a traitor during his thoughts, while other characters are still scrabbling and wondering who the traitor could be. Yeah, okay, we, we, there was a sense of dramatic irony gained, but it was so far outweighed by the foreign nature of reading everyone's minds at the same time that it never really landed for me. And it's probably my biggest criticism of the book. I can still accept it for what it is, though. It's a very poignant portrait of the landscape of fantasy and sci-fi during this time, I think. I can appreciate it without having to like it, I guess is how I'll say it. Yeah, so that is definitely, for me, a big problem. When their narrative style or something that they do pulls you out of the story and you remember that you're not in it, that's, that's a minus. Mm. You know, like, it, you messed up. I don't care who the author is. There, there are definitely books where you get pulled out because there's a mistake, or you get pulled out because 
you know, the way that they describe this. What, whatever it is, it's always, it always detracts. Yeah, so, Rob, to your point, uh, when you said, you know, like, oh, there, there are, like, it, it kind of feels outdated to you, but, but you don't want to call it outdated because... Right. There are there's always going to be something published like this. More recent, yeah. I do think it's outdated. And, and why I think okay. it's outdated is at least how it feels to me. Obviously, I don't, I don't know what was in Frank Herbert's mind when he was writing this. But in my experience with the, the state of publishing today, oh. this book would never get published as it is. Yeah. Unless the point of view and narrative structure was a deliberate choice on the part of the author to subvert expectations and subvert trends but that's not what this was like no. this wasn't like a trend subversion like oh look at this experimental style i'm doing back in 1965 you yeah. know like it was just the narrative style he chose to do mm. and and if if you or i sat down to write a book right now like you know neither of us have published a novel professionally you know if we sat down to write a book like this and then went and like tried to query it agents would be like no this doesn't work for me you know the, this this doesn't work the, you gotta you gotta choose you can't just do a limited third person perspective and an omniscient narrator you have to choose one or the other like that kind of a thing yeah um and then on top of that the 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 other Criticism, I guess you could call it a criticism, although I'm, I'm not going to be like say it's necessarily a bad thing. This book feels like about a book and a half. Yes. Like, oh my god. Time skip yes. after book two, the like whatever three year time skip. It, it it felt like we we got a pretty good climactic moment at the end of book two here, um, uh, where where. Jessica and Paul finally get to uh, immerse themselves in in Fremen culture, and and he meets Chani, Chaney. They say Chaney. In I said Chani in the audio. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's spelled Chani. And then and then suddenly it's like three years later, and like Paul's got a son, and mm -hmm. Jessica's daughter's been born, and like, mm -hmm. and and all of this stuff is going down. And I'm like, wait a second, like this feels like the beginning of a new book, and then it's a very very rushed book. Yeah, and you're two thirds that, of the way that, through it. You're like, what? Oh, yeah. Wait, hold on. <laughs> I legitimately had to go and see. I was like, is this like a compendium? Is it? Is this actually multiple books in yeah. one, like we had with Chronicles of Amber? Like, what the hell is this? Book one, <laughs> book two, but apparently it wasn't. <laughs> Apparently it wasn't, yeah. but I had to stop and look that up because I was so confused by that exact point. I was reading along, and when I was listening, I was like, did it skip? Mm -hmm. Oh, mm -hmm. shoot, did it skip? No. Well, like, <laughs> yeah. I, I remember, like, the first time... Um, I feel you. Uh, the first time Alia is mentioned, and I was like, wait, who, who's this? What, what now? Saint like, Alia of the Knife? Yeah, like... Uh, it, like when when because she was mentioned earlier, you know, in the epigraphs and whatever. Yes. And then oh, and then yep. the next time, like she shows up on the page as like a character in the narrative, and I was like, "Wait, who?" And I, I it took me a little bit to realize, oh, she's Jessica's daughter. Oh, I like the the unborn, you know, like the the character who the last time we saw these characters, she was like 
Jessica was newly pregnant. Like, she wasn't even showing yet, you know? I, and then suddenly we have this time skip and she's like, you know, a little girl running around. I can't say and, that particular part took me aback just because of, of Paul's prophecy, if you want to call it that, when he outright told his mom, Jessica, that... By the way, your daughter's name, I know it. It's going to be Saint Aaliyah of the Knife. And I was like, oh, okay, so we're going to see her in future books. No, we saw her a few chapters later, yeah, yeah. already as a toddler. But I, was, I, I knew right away who she was because I had already been looking for that because Paul had already made that prediction. Yeah, it, it just took me a little bit to connect those two together. And then I was like, oh, okay. Because I didn't expect that. Like, it was it was so jarring having that time jump. Especially having the time jump start with um, uh, the Harkonnens. Where they're talking about, uh, you know, like, Fade, who's, like, downplaying, like, whatever, 4D chess with the, the Slave Master. And, <laughs> and I was like... The Slave... I thought he was gonna, like, kill the Slave Master after, you know, like, he was using the whole setup with the, like, the not-drugged arena battle oh, to, yeah. to kill the slave master and now he's down there playing chess with him like five yeah. minutes later and then I'm I realized so wait confused. this isn't five minutes later this is three years later like <laughs> yeah yeah that was well yeah that no that one was weird that was weird because then he was like I know what you did mm-hmm yeah, it, you were confronting him like years there later. Were, what? There were no clues there were no signifiers in the text at the beginning of book three um with that first chapter until like halfway through the chapter to say, oh, by the way, there's been this huge time skip. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, yeah very so, jarring. And, and then she's, you know, they're married and they have a son. Whoa, 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 mm -hmm. whoa. <laughs> yeah. So maybe we can agree, like not necessarily amateur, just outdated. Yeah. Bit. Well, yeah. I mean, also, so we've done some slush panels where people submit their work to agents. We. <laughs> okay, I sat there, Drew submitted his work, but, but they were so very critical of the first sentence, the first paragraph, the first page. I'm like that. And reading this, like, you've got one, two, three, four, five, six, six words in the first paragraph that you have no context for. Thank you. <laughs> mm, my God, it bothered me so much. He, Herbert doesn't spend any time acclimatizing his readers to the characters or the setting or to the conflict. The, the opening scene I thought was okay, but on that exact same point, Drew, uh, Drew, sorry, Lauren, what the hell did I say, Drew? What the hell? There's, there's like, there's like, we I'm so used to it just comes out of my mouth when I'm, when I'm said we. responding to somebody here. The, the scene itself is okay, but I, as Drew has said before, I am somebody who pays very, very close attention to that first sentence, to that first paragraph. Yeah. Like, we meet Jessica and her son, Paul. And we have the Reverend Mother Gaius Helen of the Bane Gesserit. But mm -hmm, mm -hmm. even though we, we only have three characters, if, if memory serves, I think it's been a couple of weeks since I actually started the book. Um, we're, we're still just assailed with strange names, unfamiliar culture, and alien politics. We hear names like Arrakis, the Gom Jabbar, or Gom Jabbar, however that's pronounced in the audiobook, the Quaisat's Heterak. Sorry? 
in Muad'Dib, the Muad'Dib, Kwisatz Heteract. We were, were, were told about the existence of somebody named Thufir Hawat, the Harkonnens, Duke Leto. We hear references to the Kayed or and the Bashar and commanding of the Fremen. This is all in the first two or three pages. Like, it's such a cold dunking that if I hadn't had experience with bigger epic fantasy novels before, I would have put the book down at that point. Because I had, at this point, even having all this experience that I have, limited as it is compared, I think, to Drew's, I didn't, I just, I, it, I didn't like it. Right so, off the bat, Alan, I didn't like it. Sorry, go ahead. When you first read this book, how much science fiction or fantasy had you read before? Me? Alan. Oh. Um, I'd say a moderate amount. Okay, so, so you... Like, like, how did you feel about this kind of intro where where you're just getting inundated with unfamiliar terms and names? I remember the first time I read the book, I was like, what the hell is going on? And, <laughs> and it took to the end of the second reading that I put through on the book to actually say, okay, I, I'm... I'm getting what's going on here, and then and then after that, then I've I've read it more times after that, and each time I, I don't say I get more out of it. I say that there are specific parts that I enjoy more. But I think I think part of the thing though is is that yeah, you get dunk, you get the cold dunk as Rob said on there. But honestly, that's one of the things about this that I appreciate. Like if you've been kicked mm -hmm. eighty thousand years into the future and you don't recognize some of the words, you're going to have to catch up. Like I like yeah. one of the things is is that is that one of the the things about Dune that's always struck me is is that this is not a book for beginners, and it is not apologetic for that as well. Like if you started reading Harry Potter and it was like this, you would you would just give up reading. You'd be like, you know what I'm gonna do? Buy a Nintendo <laughs> DS, and that would that that's what you would do forever. But this 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 book like like the the book starts off being. 700 or 800 pages and it starts you off with no background in there and it's supposed to it's it's it is intentionally harsh and i feel yeah. like the fact that it's harsh is because it's forcing you to struggle through the book like the characters are struggling through the narrative and i think that is what the book is is, is 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 Painful to start. Yeah, like you're like I like like even when I reread it, I'm, I reread it. I'm like, oh, Bashar. I was like, oh yeah, that's some sort of military leader. And but I like other than that, I don't know. I, I don't know. Like there are there are <laughs> there are appendices in the back here, which drives me mm -hmm. nuts. Like I like I don't feel like you should need appendices in a book. I feel like you should be able to write it. But part of the thing is, is that I think even Frank Herbert got to the end of this. He was like, ah, here's my here's my magnum opus. And I need to give some people some help afterwards. I feel like yeah, this yeah, book is yeah. designed to be read, and then you flip over to the appendix, and then you then you go back to the book, and then you flip over to the and you 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 piece it together. You are being taken on a journey of recognizing that that Paul, who is a teenager, who while having cool potential and everything like that, is literally being uprooted and being thrown into the middle of the desert. And he's like, what, what the shit am I gonna do now? And and part of the thing is, is that that if 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 Fair. if he spoon fed it to you and he and he, and he called and he, instead of Bashar, he used the word Colonel or something like that, it it would just break the 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 routine on there. Like if if you look, like if you take a look at this book, there are a lot of things like religious prophecy, like religion plays a huge piece in here. If you yes. go through there. 
I like to think that I've, I've, I've seen my, my fair share of scripture. But when it comes to, to like religious connotations and quotes and stuff like that, I found only one real tie-in to actual any Judeo-Christian established religion that you see so far. He created an entire religion. So you're supposed to be forced into this religion. You're like, you're like, okay, so, so, okay. You're like, all right, all right, I gotta brush, brush up on my Arabic just so I can make <laughs> sense of this because there are so many yeah. Muslim tie-ins on here. So like, like the, like the idea, like, like they're going on fatwas and stuff like that. Like you're like, okay, you have to educate yourself on this. And don't forget, when this was written, the internet wasn't around. So you read this book, like this was back in the, the good old days when you'd have a 33 record and and one cassette tape and you'd have four books on your bookshelf. So yeah. you read this book six times because you didn't have 900 books. Like I didn't have a Kindle, so I could decide that I wanted to read every yeah, yeah. single book that's <laughs> yeah, yeah, written okay. by Aaron fair, A. Fair. Aronson. So I, I feel like I'm glad that the book is not gentle and is not kind. So yeah, like it shifts from this perspective to this perspective to this perspective to omniscient era, and, 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 it, and it hops back and forth I feel like I'm glad that the book is difficult to read, but it is well written while it's difficult to read. It's like paying chess against somebody who's really good. Like it's it's a it's a marvel to watch and it's tough as to do. And I, I, I appreciate that. I'm glad that it's that it's hard. Because it, it yeah, yeah. it's that's why you read it once and you get to the end, you're like, yeah, that was garbage. And then you read it the second time, you're like, oh, that was less garbage. And then you read it the sixth time, like me, and you're like, oh, okay, that's good. That that being said, there's so many parts that I want. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to criticize later, but I feel like the narrative style and the 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 cold drop, as Rob calls it, I, are things that I'm glad it does because if it, you like if it didn't have those parts, the book would be shitty. I have you to need admit, to read Malazan Book of the Fallen. I have to admit, and I'm really glad that we're, we're, we're doing this where we are for episode, I think this is episode 83, I want to say 83, of, of uh, yeah, the podcast, yes, yes. right when we are just coming out of The Way of Kings, because I had a lot of positive to say about The Way of Kings and how it starts, not to spoil anything, I'm not going to spoil anything in the book, but it does, as Drew, uh, you, you, you had a bit of a complaint at the beginning of the Way of Kings saying that it gives us this info dump. It kind of just throws us into the, into the world. And I use that term again, this cold dunk, because it gives us this feeling like the readers of, of being just thrust into things that you can't control, things that are out of, out of, that are, well, I should say out of control. And you're just kind of fumbling to pick up the pieces and make sense of it. The pieces being, of course, all these different names you're given, all these different settings you're given, all these different political motivations that you're given. I liked that about The Way of Kings. Or maybe because, you know what? You know what? No, I'm going to back up and say at first I didn't like that about The Way of Kings. But I have read The Way of Kings uh, three, four dozen times, and I can appreciate it now that I have the context. So that might be another point in your, in your favor there, Alan. Perhaps if I read Dune a few more times, I will appreciate this cold dunking, as I'll term it. But for now, I just, for my first read, it was pretty alien. Yes. And I wasn't really comfortable with it. So, so I will say, as far as the cold dunking goes, I can't tell you how many anime or manga I've read. You have <laughs> okay, no yeah, that's fair. Idea I know where you're going with this. Going on. You have no idea what's going on, and you slowly get clues, and you still don't know what's going on. It's more of an Eastern style of storytelling, going. I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I co okay, I can see it that way, but... 
Yeah, I, I'm glad you brought that up, Rob, because I was going to directly compare the way this book opens with the way uh, Brandon Sanderson opens the Stormlight Archive. Same wavelength, my man. We've known each other for 11 years, styles. dude. How, uh, and, and on this count, I, I fall a little more on Alan's side where I appreciate the, um, the fact that he doesn't waste time explaining every little thing to you. He just gets right into the story. Uh, and and that's something that, you know, like like Alan said, this is not a book for beginners. And if you're, if you're, you know, that kind of a beginner reader of, you know, science fiction or fantasy, where you're not used to reading books, where you don't know all the names or the terms or the worlds or whatever, you'll 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 feel lost because of that. And and over time, at least for me, uh, reading speculative fiction like this I have come to you know a sort of understanding where if you start reading a book that treats its opening the way Dune does or Malazan does or you know whatever you have to just trust it you have to trust the text and say okay I don't know whose name this is or, or what this character is like I will find out I don't need to open Dune and hear them say Thufir Hawat and need the narrative to say, oh, he's a, uh, uh, he's, he's a, a walking computer who's trained in assassin arts and he's the right-hand man of Duke Leto and all of this stuff. It's like, no, I'll find that out eventually. I'll find it out when it's pertinent to the story for me to know this information. And... And it's the same thing with the Wheel of Time, for instance. You know, the, the, the famous prologue in the Eye of the World, where we have terms being thrown around. Oh, lose Theron Telamon, Perrin Deeson, you know, the Ring of Tamerlan, summoning the Ride well, of Rod's Dominion. You know, that it's wasn't like in the all this stuff in the first page of the, we, of the Eye of the World. Just like all this stuff is being thrown around in the first page of Dune. Oh, it was. What am I and saying? It's like, and, you, and you have to just accept that these terms are being thrown at you, and you will understand them when you need to understand them. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's fair. Um, I do want to. I do want to draw a point to say that I texted Drew a few days ago saying, "Dude, we are gonna have so much style to talk about. It's gonna be an hour long plus segment just for <laughs> style." And it looks like I have actually nailed that prediction because we are. 30 minutes plus into the episode, and I'm only halfway through my style discussion points. <laughs> this, this yeah, is I have, be... a, I have a, a fair amount more to go through Yeah, as well. no, definitely. Um, let's, let's, let's shift it, for me at least, on, on my front, a little more positive. It's hard not to notice just how much this series has influenced writers that came after. I speak, of course, at the moment about primarily Robert Jordan, with my experience. The Fremen are very clearly they sorry they I should say they very clearly inspired Jordan's own Aiel warrior society okay. who also oh, live Oh, we have criticisms. Yeah. Hold uh, on. <laughs> this is this is again one of my points that I still had to talk about. Yeah. I have been hearing for years people saying, "Oh, the the Fremen in Dune are the like root inspiration for the Aiel in Wheel of Time. The Bene Gesserit are the inspiration for the Aes Sedai." I think those comparisons are so overblown after reading Dune. Really? The, the the similarities are surface level at best. Especially with the Fremen and the Aiel, most of the the shared similarities they have are just no, Frank Herbert and Robert Jordan took inspiration from 
uh, indigenous Indian tribes, uh, like you know Native American tribes, okay. uh, um, yeah. uh, Middle Eastern tribes, um, uh, South African tribes, things like that. Uh, it's it, it. I don't know. It drives me nuts now when I see like there was just a thread in the Wheel of Time group the other day while I was in the middle of reading Dune where this guy was like. Um, complaining that people say Terry Goodkind plagiarized the Wheel of Time when Robert Jordan so clearly plagiarized Dune, and I'm like, I'm so glad you brought up Goodkind. Yeah, all no. not at all. Like, like I said, the Benny Gesserit. The only real similarities between them and the Aes Sedai are that they're an all-female organization, and they have some like mind tricks that they like, you know, okay. use to Fair. Well, concentration. The, the Other than that. At- there's there's no similar like structure. There's no cultural similarity. The Fremen they are nothing like the ideal, other than they're desert warriors, and they live in like you know holes. And they have a whole economy based around water and ceremony. Except the ideal like the ideal when we see them in the Wheel of Time. <laughs> I'm gonna try not to do spoilers here. Water has nowhere near the the importance to the Aiel that it does with the Fremen. Yeah. The Aiel have crops. They have corn and tomatoes and apples and things like that. And they, they know how to survive. They yeah, can learn. Yeah, they like, can live off the land. It's it's the I don't, I don't know. The only similarities with them are literally their desert warrior clans. That's it. Can I make an inference? Because <laughs> I, I I don't know the comparison here, but I bet mm-hmm. what it was is that Frank Herbert originally wrote Dune eight million years ago. And then he did Messiah, and then he did Children of Dune, and then he did God Emperor, and then he did Heretics, mm-hmm. and then he did Chapter House, and then he f- died, like all good authors mm-hmm. should, <laughs> before, before they use up all their material. But what happened is, is that then his son went back and rewrote 800 yes. books, like, like, like Tolkien. Like Tolkien wrote X amount, and then after that, his son took over the reins and everything like that. Well, I bet you you're going to see a lot no, more similarities oh. between... The stuff written by what's his Brian Herbert, Kevin J. Anderson do yeah Brian Herbert and Kevin J. Anderson like co-wrote a bunch yeah, of they, stuff. They yeah, they wrote like in 06 and 07, stuff. Right? They probably wrote like ten or fifteen or twenty books that were prequel the stuff rapper. to this. So like, there's a book just on the Benny Gesserit, and that's it. So I bet you, if you read the book that. Herbert's son, Brian, what Brian wrote about it, you'd see a lot more parallels. But I think in terms of what you'd see between what Frank Herbert did, you're not going to see the same thing. So ago. people are saying like, oh yeah, well, it, it's all the same and they're, they're just copying uh, the original Dune novel. No, Dune started here and it, 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 it progressed naturally. And then after that, essentially people wrote a bunch of fan fiction and people were just like, hey, the fan fiction's <laughs> all similar. Well, well, of course, it's because when they wrote it, so much more had already been written and those people had read other art- yeah. article, had read other artists and those they had, they had created the worlds by copying the people that copied that copied. So you're just getting a fax that's sent over 8,000 times, just faxed back and forth and you're saying, oh, well, it's all black and all lines up. So that might be what happens. I don't know because I'm not that well yeah, read in yeah, terms you'll, of that, you'll but. forgive me if I don't read the Brian Herbert and Kevin J. Anderson stuff to find out because I've heard way too much bad stuff about their books. Well, I, I <laughs> really? can tell you that I will. I will because the, the <laughs> Bene Gesserit are really interesting to me and I want to know what happens in this school. I don't know. I mean, like, because their whole deal was that they want this, this like, 
human genetic purification like program that was a little weird. going on and and like that's nothing like what the Aes Sedai it, it might be the opposite of what the Aes Sedai are doing in, in the wheel of time yeah like, <laughs> I, I, I have like, to say with the Bane Gesserit I didn't really notice a whole lot of tie-ins to the, to the Aes Sedai from the wheel of time that actually didn't occur to me at all although I had gone into this knowing that I was going to look out for the Fremen and how they obviously influenced the Aeel. Uh, I mean, obviously, they live in a desert. Their formality and their culture, the ceremony, their entire economy based around water, the fact they are formidable fighters. Uh, but, uh, like, other things, like, for example, uh, Jessica going against the customs of the Bane Gesserit in deciding to have a son instead of a daughter to continue and still continue to teach him the ways of the Bane Gesserit strongly reminded me of Terry Goodkind, and this is why I said I was glad that you brought up Terry Goodkind with his Order of Confessors in the Sword of Truth series, for anyone who's read that, though. Admittedly, when talking about an author like Goodkind, that wouldn't be the only thing in his series <laughs> inspired by other works. But No, but but remember, Terry Goodkind doesn't read science fiction or fantasy, so no, he, he doesn't with that idea completely in a vacuum. No, no. And if you see all these connections in his in his uh, in his works, then you are clearly not old enough to be reading and appreciating exactly. his books. Yeah, you're just you're just not a mature enough reader. Sorry, Alan. Terry Goodkind. I don't know if you know about Terry Goodkind, but he's 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 an author with. Um... He's a bit of a meme. Oh. 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 That goes on. I am so sorry. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I've read all the sort of truth too. Yeah, it's my sincerest condolences. Well, you know what? Oh. It's, it's either that or I, I. I had Chinese water torture. It was a. It was a toss up. I got. <laughs> <laughs> I will still defend and, and, Wizard's First Rule. Damn it! I love that book. The rest of that followed. I read it. I did read it. Yeah. Absolute yeah. toss. The but, books but that follow. Absolute toss. It takes up this much space on a bookcase, and it really shouldn't. Like, it burns yeah. well, I'm yeah, sure. Yeah, because he tells the same story ten books in a row. <laughs> yes. I also have a few other points during the other books that I will anyway, mention in, but in a back positive to Dune, later. Back but, to Dune. Yeah, back to, back to Dune. Um, are we done talking about uh, connections and inspiring other authors? Can I talk about this uh, this time period in which it was written in the 1960s? I just want to bring up one part. Is sure. that that with the later books, you start to understand that that things like the Bene Gesserit are not as one-dimensional as they appear. And it's because they really aren't. The Bene Gesserit are actually super badass. But imagine instead of picturing them, because part of the thing that they that they really talk about is they talk about the fact that, that their 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 goal is the Quadrasachatarach, which is, the, or, or the least yes. I'll give, or whatever you want to call it. Um, the, the thing is, is that that's that's kind of like them aiming f that's them shooting for the stars but so much of the organization is essentially them positioning themselves as the power behind the throne they recognize yeah. that they want to exist essentially as a symbiotic relationship that is literally con the, the behind the scenes in everything they want their fingers in every single pie and they do it very well Unless you read the stuff that Brian Herbert wrote, and then you're you're basically like 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 someone gave him some crayons, and they were like, "You go write some books oh, now." But <laughs> no, no. No. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, I appreciate the way you, you kind of phrased that because I I picked up on that in this, and I thought it was really cleverly done. How it the more you read through this, the more you realize that like every single noble house, every nobleman. Is, seems to be married or, or married to or have a cocky, concubine who is mm -hmm. a Bene Gesserit. Mm -hmm. and, and beyond that, 
the way this system is set up, because there's one one like offhand remark that I think Count Fenring had, where he said like, "Why don't you?" Or no, no, it was Fade. Fade was talking with Baron Harkonnen mm-hmm. uh, in that first chapter of uh, Part Three mm-hmm. of Book Three, where he's like, "Why don't you buy?" A Benny Gesserit, and he's like, "Oh, you know what I like," and he's like, "No, no, no, like just just buy one and use like the advantages they have. You don't need to like make her your wife or anything." Mm-hmm. But the fact that this system is set up so that the nobles have the illusion of power, where they're the ones buying Benny Gesserit as slaves, yeah. as concubines or whatever. Except the Bene Gesserit are really the ones who are manipulating them. Mm-hmm. It's a very clever kind of dynamic mm-hmm. going on there. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, and like the like the whole Missionera Protectiva. I, th- I like like I appreciate yeah. that so much more. The fact that 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 the Bene Gesserit showed up on this planet and they were immediately like, you know what we need to do? We need to essentially create and establish an entire religion based upon if we've got operatives that show up to this planet and they need to pretend that they're that they're part of some religious following to essentially use religious might on that planet. Like the fact that the Lisa and Al Gib was just created by the missionary Protectiva as as literally it was essentially their plot device. The fact that they were like, they're like, you know what we'll do? We might get to this planet. We might need to take we might need to do something important. So you know what we'll do? We'll essentially seed an entire populace with the idea that if a Bene Gesserit shows up, you all need to listen to her. <laughs> like that's super yeah. badass. Like that's that's like the Jesuits yeah. going into the the new world and being like, you know what we should do? We should talk about the fact that there are specific physical features of people that will then be listened to as religious leaders, and they just happen to be all be Spaniards. Like I don't know what's happening. Like it, like it was. <laughs> yeah. It's it's like if you if you you think about the Bene Gesserit, they are. Scary. The fact that they spend a hundred, oh, they spend a hundred generations seeding the entire population, making themselves essential, and and just constantly waiting to flex muscle. But the whole idea of like we yeah, exist yeah. only to serve the Bene Gesserit are super badass. Like the fact that they're all female what? is just a plot device to me. But whatever. Mm-hmm. Well, and and that's a tool they use too. There are a couple times where they reference. Um, Oh, like a man is no barrier. Mm-hmm. I just have mm-hmm. to, mm-hmm. you know, seduce him mm-hmm. yeah. in whatever way he needs to be seduced because I I know it because mm-hmm. I can study him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and, and I mean, get that. maybe this goes back to that that earlier criticism I had of the time skip where where there's this um, this like key moment uh, before Paul duels uh, Fade at the end. And Jessica pulls him aside and she's like, look, here's this, like, keyword that you can use to disable him. And that becomes, like, uh, an internal climax for Paul, like, mm-hmm. whether he's going to use it or not. And, and his choice to not use it helps kind of, like, solidify, like, his purpose and who he is. And and th- that was only set up by, like, a scene right at the end of book two, with Mar- a couple with chapters Margo earlier... Yeah. Yeah, yeah, where where the the Count and Countess Fenring are talking about like how she's going to seduce him and like prep him and everything, and it's like it, it, that felt very I don't know. It was just part three felt so rushed to me, mm-hmm. uh, where where so many things were yep. set up that it, it felt like if if it if Dune had ended with 
the end of book two. And then book three had been stretched out into a full novel sequel, it would have felt like narratively better to me, I guess. I agree with that. I agree. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I may have been a little unsatisfied with the ending of book one if that was how it had been approached. But I wouldn't have felt that, like, for example, at the end of this book, it just felt so abrupt, speaking directly on the end, on the last few pages. I went forward expecting to see another chapter or perhaps an epilogue and went straight into the appendixes. (laughs) <laughs> and I, I was like, oh, 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 I am done. Oh, okay. I've... Yeah, it ended pretty hard on the heels of the climax. Like, there was very little denouement at all. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But, yep. So, yeah, going forward with style, though, because we still have some style points to get out of the way, and we are 45 <laughs> minutes into this episode. Um, <laughs> as is probably unsurprising to those with the appropriate context and fantasy and sci-fi in the time of the 1960s, we have many many references to Christianity and the Bible in this book. Like, several characters, particularly, uh, I want to say it was Halleck, Gurney Halleck, mm-hmm. who, who are yep. outright quoting passages um, yes. with, with have any appropriate relation to any given situation. I guess, to, for me, I, I interpreted it as like a constant reminder for myself. This is what I have to keep in mind just about how different our society itself was decades in the past. I mean, in episode 11, we covered Madeleine Langle's A Wrinkle in Time, which, Lauren, you were also mm-hmm. a guest for. What's up, Lauren? And <laughs> in that episode, I drew a point about how being written in the 1960s, there were several... I actually wrote down oblique references, but I'm not sure if I want to use the term oblique. Maybe just unexpected references to the Bible and to Jesus Christ, as if they had relevance in discussions that were primarily about science. Like, clearly, authors nowadays tend to either avoid religion, from my experience, they either avoid religion altogether, or they're including all religions, many religions, Islam, Judaism, Hinduism, Christianity, etc. But having now read two books... Like from that decade, or at least two very prominent books of that decade in the landscape of fiction, seeing the multitude of references to Christianity and only Christianity, it just it struck me as as just a little bit surreal. How about you guys? Anyone? I mean, sorry, go ahead, Lauren. You're the expert. No, no, no. You go first. The only thing that I was going to say is that I think it's more representative in terms of the population that would have been reading this book at that point in time in terms of the societal norms that were expected. Like 50 years ago, the number of people that identified as any major Judeo-Christian relationship would have been a lot higher than it is now. Like, I, I just, I feel like, I feel like writing about it wasn't something that was something, writing about it wasn't something, wasn't necessary to be stepped around. And I feel that also, the tie-ins in terms of the the whole the whole like the whole I don't know I guess like the whole like Muslim tie-in in terms of of a lot of like the the Arabic influence isn't something that would be would be skirted around nowadays. Like if you wrote a book and you tried to say like oh look the kind of the religions have kind of merged themselves together into one and people would be up in arms like like people would be would be yeah. blowing up Charlie Ebido again. Cultural appropriation. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. And I feel like they were he was able to make the connections without concern of people's sensibilities being offended. Right. Um, I, 
I will say I wasn't jarred by the way uh, religion was integrated into this book, uh, and maybe that's because I've read a, a good amount of science fiction and fantasy from earlier generations of writers, uh, and I've seen this sort of uh, like religious adaptation into stories before. Um, you know, I just want to make it clear, sorry Drew, before I continue For me it was just the fact that it was only one religion in particular Which as you said, Alan, may have been appropriate for the, the audience who was receiving it Wait, what do you mean by only I, I mean, The fact I, that it was Christianity saw, in particular Oh, there, but there was, there was so much Islam, like, woven oh, into it yeah Oh, yeah Oh, maybe I just don't, I mean, I uh, <laughs> Yeah, okay, sorry Maybe I just don't have the, the context necessary to appreciate mm -hmm. the others yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, all the stuff like you know with Hajj and, and like they're going on like jihad and, and fatwas and like and and a, a whole bunch of I mean, language, I picked up on the jihad, religious definitely. language around it is um, is Arabic and uh, yeah. But anyway, um, I I think this is kind of a good segue into my last style point, and it also ties back all the way to the beginning where when I said. I don't think this book would get published now. Originally, I was talking about it in the sense of uh, the the narrative style and the, and the point of view structure and things like that. But some of the actual storytelling elements in it are things really frowned upon now. The fact that our... Uh, like one of the most defining traits in our main antagonist is that he's gay. Um, like, and that he's fat. Those are the two big things about well, Baron Harkonnen. He's gay and he's fat. It's not just that he's they're, gay. Therefore, he must be evil. No, 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 I wouldn't say gay. I'd say he's a pedophile. I mean, well, he's, he's a sadomasochistic well. pedophile. But he, he very specifically is only interested in young men, and he makes a point about that yeah, in that true. scene with Fade, where Fade's like, why don't you get a Benny Jesser? And he's like, I'm... He in a roundabout yeah. way he says I'm not into women. Yeah, yeah you know he you know, he like, they establish it in in the the prequel stuff. He is he is 100% batting for one team. Yeah, yeah, like in and nowadays if you were to try to publish a book where your main antagonist is a gay fat man, hell no, you're getting you're getting absolutely shut down. Well, oh okay, yeah, like, I would I would and, unless you have gay though, characters where protagonists. I would yeah. big time differentiate between gay and. Well, so, pedophile. so I'm, I'm still moving. I'm still on this point, Lauren. Sorry, sorry. Sorry, go ahead. And, and, and it, again, it goes beyond that, where it, there's such an overwhelming preponderance, and this is where the pedophile thing comes in and why it would be really frowned upon nowadays, is that there is an implicit connection made between being gay and being a pedophile in this book. The only gay character we see is also a pedophile. Mm. Oh, and call that and implicit connection. And, and not, not only that, but but uh, but he sexually assaults, forcibly uh, yes. assaults minors. Like, like, like every yeah, single like, possible connection on there, it's... <laughs> oh, yeah, wow, yeah, it would what, not get so published what, right now. Mm -mm. <laughs> what, what this book does is dispense with nuance. There is no nuance about it. And, and what it does is, therefore, your evil character, all of his defining attributes, therefore, are evil. And so nowadays, like, uh, if you tried to make a, an evil, gay, fat pedophile, 
you know, your main antagonist, that's like 100% a no-go because to agents and editors, you know, at, at the big publishing companies, that's like, oh, so you're, what you're trying to say is the only gay character is also a pedophile and fat and evil? Oh, so you're trying to equate yeah, gayness but- with pedophiles and evil people. And that's the, that is the, um, the connection that's, that uh, editors and agents now would say you're making. I don't necessarily agree with that, but that would never, ever get published today. I don't know. I think that's on you as a reader, though, for interpreting every single... It's not on me. It's on the agents and editors in New York who are turning it down for that reason. They're saying, because the only gay character in your book is also evil and fat and a pedophile, you're framing gay people as bad. Yeah, but why would you say why would why would every single tri- uh, trait that this guy has have to be bad? I mean, this is a this is a one note pony. This is actually okay, you're, just you're bad missing, writing. You're for... missing the point. You're missing the point of what I'm saying. Sorry, go ahead. What the consciousness, the collective consciousness of the powers that be in publishing right now are looking at is tokenizing. If you have one gay character in your book, that's bad. And if you have one gay character in your book and he's also evil, that's extra bad. If you have one gay character and he's evil and he's fat and he's a pedophile, they're saying, oh, so what you're doing is saying in your book, they're assigning their own meaning to your your writing. It is. It is reductionist. But it's also like in, in the current cultural landscape of publishing, they're saying it is painting gay people as evil. Mm-hmm. So you, like, representation yeah. is a big, big deal right now. You can't just have one gay character. If you have a gay character in your book, like, you know, that's... God forbid you don't have a gay character in your book. Well, yeah, I mean, that's... But the, what Frank Herbert did in this book would just plain never fly in 2020 in the publishing landscape. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't like that. I can see what you're saying, though. I, I can actually agree with that. Realistically, it wouldn't fly. I don't like that it wouldn't fly just because of other logical reasons. I was like, you know, bad guys can have good traits too. Nobody's all 100% bad. But I can Although, absolutely see what you're saying Baron in Harkin that. Bar- Bar- the Baron is basically is. 100% jackass. <laughs> yeah, and can we also just... <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. Did you hear his... You didn't hear his voice, though. His voice is beautiful. <laughs> it is. It, listen, and speaking of that, it's, it's a good time you to draw to the like point... A really smooth-talking... There is going to be a 2020 or 2021 film, Dune. A high-budget yeah. Hollywood film, Dune. So, Do you know who's playing this guy, Baron? No, uh, I haven't seen anything. I was waiting to Morgan finish this film before I watch any of the... No. Yes! Do you know who's playing who the Baron? No, who, who? No, who, who is it? It's Stalin Skarsgård. Okay, I don't know who that is. Yeah, you do. He's uh, he's the scientist in Thor. He's he's Bootstrap Bill, in in Pirates of the Caribbean. He's also uh, in in the Avengers. He's the uh, scientist who brings the portal forth. He has all the sons who are in the industry, the Skarsgård sons, who are also acting in Just like look it up on YouTube films or like on, it. on Google or something. Well, yeah. Yeah. Stalin, you, as soon as you see him, actors. I don't watch movies and I'm terrible with actors. Ah, so. As soon as for anybody uh, who's listening, yeah. Stalin Skarsgård is going to be the Baron Oscar, Harkonnen. So uh, isn't Oscar Isaac in it? I don't know. Who I actually, is. have no idea. I didn't see that. The the uh, Poe Dameron. Oh, oh really? The new Star Wars. Poe Dameron. Is, oh damn! I, I assume he's Duke Leto. <laughs> oh, okay, yeah. I, okay, I know that guy. I know that guy. All right. All right. Yeah, yeah. He's gonna I'm, be the Baron. I think he's gonna play a fantastic Baron Harkonnen. I love that actor. I think that they will so, not so mention the fact that he that he's gay at all in the movie. I just think yeah. that it's it's too much of a hot button issue. Whether Frank Herbert wrote him as having 
blue eyes or brown eyes or like they're just gonna be like nope we're just gonna not talk about that part because it's sure. not worth the political firestorm right to deal with it it's it's just it's not worth bringing it up it's like you know yes. it's like oscar isaac is duke leto yeah like like okay. let's let's oh say, really really no. yeah okay like like on th- and, Thanksgiving, um, do you bring up politics? No, you just don't talk about it because you're well, always. Well, some family members do, and other ones, others of us just Momoa bite our knuckles. Is playing Duncan. Wait, who is Jason who? Momoa? Is Duncan Idaho? Oh, Who's wow, Duncan Idaho? Be... You are disrupting, though. No, no, no! I want to hear this. I didn't actually that that I, that you and, cut and out there for Timothy me. Timothy Chalamet is Paul. Who is Duncan Idaho? Jason Momoa. Jason Momoa. Oh my god, every single time you say that last name, my audio cuts out. This is the most unfortunate coincidence. Alan, you say Jason it. Okay. Mo Mo. <gasps> Jason Momoa? <laughs> really? <laughs> <laughs> this is that's insane. Every single time you said that last name, my audio cut out. I was like, Jason who? Statham? What the hell are you talking about? <laughs> see, see uh, Jason, so, Jason Statham so. could do a good Gurney Halleck, I think. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. probably yeah. yeah. <laughs> Could you imagine the uh, the Bible quotes in his uh, English accent? Oh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. With well, with the ink vine notice... scar, I could see it. Yeah. Did yeah. you notice that some accents were British and some were English? In the audiobook. Like American. In the audiobook. Yeah, in the audiobook. Hmm? <laughs> Did you say English versus British? Uh, I'll I'll say American. We'll say we'll call it American, not English. Okay, because I was like, oh my god, is there another distinction that I don't know? <laughs> Yikes, Lauren! <laughs> <laughs> I just want to make sure I heard her correctly. <laughs> I can't believe we're still on our style points. I still have another style point to bring up. Oh my I'm, god, I'm done with Wait, my style points. I have points to tell now. you. I have okay. to tell you. So the voice for Baron Harkonnen is like James Earl Jones. Yes. Damn it. Oh, okay. Oh, listen to the audiobook. <laughs> I actually I have two. Yeah. I have two more style points. One about one of those is about what Lauren is talking about right now, the audiobook. It's phenomenal. I bought both versions. I bought the first book, uh, you know, electronically on Google Books. I have the ebook, and I read the entire thing that way. But there were times when I was busy with my hands. I was going for a walk, playing Pokemon Go, maybe uh, busy trying to fade off to sleep. I usually listen to an audiobook when I go to sleep, so I used an extra Audible credit to get the audiobook. And wow, they did it justice. There's a full cast. They have a soundtrack and ambiance, like for example, the moment when the Duke Leto died, fading music. It's it's really something to listen to. I would absolutely highly recommend the audiobook. So it's like it's like veering toward the like graphic almost like a gra- audio end of yes. things rather yes. than just a regular. It's almost like graphic audio. Yeah. Wow. It's pretty good. Interesting. Um, yeah, I've only got yeah, one I also style, <laughs> your last style point. <laughs> Yeah, I also since this was written smack dab in the middle of the hottest part of the Cold War, I want to just laugh at the fact that our principal antagonist is named Vladimir. Yeah. <laughs> I, I particularly enjoyed that. And the technology. I brought this up in another book that we covered from the same era. Again, 1960s, A Wrinkle in Time. But... Boy, the authors, they, obviously they cannot be, they clearly cannot be blamed for their lack of knowledge about technological standards decades into the future. But it doesn't make it any less amusing for us to see. The way these space-faring, galaxy-spanning societies still rely on, and I quote, radiographs for communication, I just found to be downright hilarious. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so. Yeah, well. Now that we are, how long? An hour into our... <laughs> Over an hour into our episode, I'm yeah, done my style like points. 64 minutes of recording right now. I, yep, I only yep, have, I'm done I my only style have one final style point. 
Okay. The whole omniscient narrative back to the limited third person going back and forth with Paul trying to figure out whether he's looking forward in time was just so fucking annoying. Like, I just, yeah. just, oh my Like, like you, you, we, we, you talked earlier, Rob, about, like, reading through it and then, like, realizing that, like, I've zoned out. That, yep. that moment where, he, like, oh, f- he just, he's like, he's like, am I now? Is, is now now? Or is now now? I, I, what I, is now? I was, I was, every time I read that, I'm like, I, I know I can like, skip forward one and a half pages and pick up and be no farther behind. Like, I just, I, like that, I don't, I don't know what possessed him to try to just heap that, that bull of, 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 messed up Star Trek time travel garbage yep. under the under like the, the un, under the pile that was was narrative like I like I like this book and I love parts of it and like you guys talk about like oh I, I have problems with the I have problems with any time you've got the primary character rambling about bull it was just it was just Man, rambling. How, you really how did you get through all the sort of truth then I, I was young. I was young and naive. <laughs> Faith of the Fallen should have killed you. All right. I, I, no, think, that's, but, um, I, I think I bought them all and was like, I'll yeah. read two books. And I just... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. Jumping into characters. Well, well, sorry. Say, sorry. Yeah, like, the, the one redeeming quality here is I don't have a ton to say about character in Same. this book. I do. Okay. All right. <laughs> let's get it out of the way. Lauren's going to help our discussion. Uh, start with Paul, obviously. Paul. Who else are we going to start with? Okay. Let's hear it, Lauren. So, his abilities are really unclear, and it yep. feels like a double-edged sword for the author, where he can have him be, like, come in and do whatever he wants him to do, but at the same time, he'll do stupid things, and we're sat... We're, we're still, like, here wondering... Wait a second, if he's prescient, why is he asking this? Why is he doing this? Yes. So it's it's rough. It's, oh it's a hard thing to do as an author when <clears throat> you're like, oh, he's all powerful. And the next page, he's like, yeah, wait, where are we going? You have to maintain tension, narrative yeah. tension and somehow. And how do you do that with a Gary I mean, Stu? Sorry. Yes. He is. Sorry. Yeah, he, he is. He is a Gary Stu. He is a... I mean, he's an idealized character, uh, essentially without flaw, and what flaws there are are manufactured in spite of all the evidence previously established about him. Mm. Yep. Uh, I feel that yeah, the I biggest... Like, sorry, go ahead, Drew. No, sorry, my apologies. I was going to say, like, the, the biggest issue I had like getting into the book was like I just didn't connect with the main character. Yeah. How could you? Unless you were also... You can't. You can't connect with him. Like, he's, I was... He's... I was way more into like Jessica and Fufir Hawat. I, mm. I was more invested in in the Baron and scenes. My man, I like Stilgar. Yeah, Stilgar. He's badass. I mean, he's he's a mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, he wasn't particularly like dynamic or, or interesting, developed. but but he was just he was a badass. So mm. he's cool. <laughs> I feel like with yeah. with Paul, like him being. Him, him being able to see the future, but only being able to see bits of it, and then because all the shit's moving around, he can't quite see it well. Makes sense, and I understand that. Like, okay, like I understand that. That yes, he's got a flawed vision of the future. Oh, okay, all right, I'll, I'll get into that. But like, he kills Jameis, 
and he has these visions of like he's going to be leading like the Mujahideen across a galaxy spanning jihad. And then he's like, I don't want to go to the funeral. It's making me sad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just like, 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 like either, either be cool or don't be cool. But like, like this whole, like, like I'm going to lead literally the entire summation of humanity as the pinnacle existence being. And, and I'm awfully sad that I had to stab a guy. Like, I, I, I yeah, just, yeah. The, the disconnect in there is, is palpable. Like, I, every time I would read that, he'd be yeah. like, he'd be like, I don't, I don't want to go get the, the water rings. Oh. I make well, To be fair, he doesn't want to, to, you know, lead the jihad. Like, he, every time he gets this, the, the vision, he's like, repulsed by it. And he's yeah. like, what can I do to How not do, I prevent do this? this? And, yes. oh, yeah. and then each time he, he gets the vision again, he's like, well, I have fewer and fewer options. Mm-hmm to make this not happen until that that moment when he kills Jameson he's like the like it, it doesn't even matter if you know like uh, if I'm walking out of here it's gonna happen yeah. and then we get the duel with fate at the end and he's like if I die they're gonna go on crusade for me and if I don't die then they're gonna go on crusade with me like you know mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> yeah you know with 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 Paul I found him to be an all right character despite the amount as I just said as I just scraped about the incredible amount of Gary stew he brings I mean Herbert sets him up immediately at the beginning as a sympathetic protagonist he's his often referred to instinct for rightness or his condemnation of offense against rightness it's it's clearly meant to jive with the reader's own reactions and expectations but before long he immediately takes off in terms of discovering his abilities and he stops being anything resembling relatable like i i just maybe you guys can help me out with this i have a question here why is it that out of nowhere paul suddenly goes from budding leader to absolutely flawless mentalist warrior and leader when he when he like when he picks up the reason why the time skip was a problem for me well no because it happened earlier where jessica was scared of him that first leap i think was a misstep by by frank where where it was just you know all of a sudden he has all these powers and we didn't really have a build-up yeah, and it wasn't really a scene. It, it was attributed it was to like, his ingestion of like a more happened. potent spice or more like qua- yeah, like yeah. quantitative spice or qualitative spice maybe. Like even when he picks up Jamis's ballast, he plays a beautiful song and he, and he sings with a beautiful voice. Like I couldn't help but notice the proximity of this. Well, not of that particular scene, but of the scene where he finally comes into himself and he's suddenly guessing the future and he's suddenly fully realized Gary Stu, I couldn't help but notice the extreme proximity of this scene, chronologically speaking, to the death of Duke Leto. Because literally the next scene begins with... Yeah, they talk about how that's part of it and how he needed to go through trauma in some of the, like, Princess Irlan, you know, stuff. In the the epigraphs there? Yep, yep. They talk about how he needed to experience trauma to fully awaken... I just well, this... realized we never talked about the epigraphs in style. <laughs> yeah, no, like this is uh, on the epigraphs. I actually have a, a point about the epigraphs with Paul here. And I, I'm really glad that you brought that up right there, Lauren, because I found one of the epigraphs to be very, one of the epigraphs to be very appropriate and actually, you know, coincidentally beautiful regarding some few moments that Paul has, particularly this one here in discovering what kind of man his father really is. The epigraph, and I quote, there is probably no more terrible instant of enlightenment 
than the one in which you discover that your father is a man with human flesh. Yeah, I thought yeah. that was a great piece. I will also note there was a second point, not in an epigraph, but uh, in the narrative itself, where that idea is expounded upon, where it's not just discovering that your father is a man with human flesh, but that your parents are humans and love each other with a love you can never understand. That happened late in the book. Yeah, very late in the book. Yeah, you're an idiot. Which I was surprised about. Yeah. But, you know, as far as the epigraphs go, like, quick style point, I, I, of course, you know, reading any book with epigraphs, it's tough to not compare it to how Brandon Sanderson uses epigraphs in his books. Um, and I thought it was interesting how the epigraphs in this were used more like the epigraphs in The Hero of Ages, where they tend to give context and a little bit of, like, pre-illumination to what is coming in the chapter, uh, in the subsequent chapter, rather than things like in the Stormlight Archive, where the epigraphs are there mostly for world-building purposes. Mm. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can see that. Mm. Uh, let's see here. Last about Paul. Are we done with Paul? Yeah, no, just one more point here. I, <laughs> am I happy about the fact that he becomes emperor? Not particularly. No. Besides all the griping I had about his seemingly endless pool of inexplicable talents from which to draw upon, there are also a few worrying moments when well, I had when reading him. For one, when, uh, like, we know he like he's supposedly seen the future, and he aims to stop this universe-spanning jihad that he is supposed to start. Um, yes, easier to stop when you become emperor, but also far, far easier to start. Yeah. Mix that with the moment when he finds out his son has been killed. And I quote here, he could feel the old man wisdom, the uh, sorry, the accumulation of out of the experiences from countless possible lives. Something seemed to chuckle and rub its hands within him. And Paul thought, how little the universe knows about the nature of real cruelty. Yeah. Yikes! That doesn't sound like a... <laughs> A very, very positive note to go forward on, but we have it. There it is. So yeah. I don't, I, I will continue reading Dune in the future. I don't know when I'll have the time to do it in between podcast reading and, and working, but I don't have high hopes for, for Paul's future going forward because specifically because of that line. So I'm done with yeah, Paul yeah. for now. Oop, I just smacked D the mic. Dune Messiah, the next book, the Dune Messiah, the next book is substantially shorter. Hmm. It's, it's, it's wafer thin compared to this. Okay. It's, I'd say, maybe a quarter of the, of the total length. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Well, because, yeah, because you've got, yeah, because Dune's big, Messiah is small, Children is big, God Emperor's not quite as big, Heretics gets a little bit smaller, and then Chapter House, I don't even remember. I just stopped. Yeah. I got All right. All right. All I know about God Emperor of Dune is that it has one of the worst book covers of all time. It's got like a, oh, a guy the, the in giant weird. It's like it's like a dude the, the, in like a snake penis snake. snake. Yeah. <laughs> oh what? All right. I wasn't sure how, this like, later. You guys were censor on censor on this. But yeah, yeah. It's real that. bad. I got that on my bookshelf someplace. It's oh, it's God. like yes. like that and the cover of Heroes Die might be the two worst book covers oh, I've ever man. seen for very different reasons. <laughs> oh man, Stover. Oh. All right, Jessica. Great we'll talk about Jessica cover. Real quick. Uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, what? Hold on, hold on. I got it, I got it. Oh no, Alan's bringing the book cover. Uh-oh. 
<laughs> what oh, is that? <laughs> Literally, it's a penis really, snake. That's, that's Wait, it. Wait, are that's those it. people down there? It, yeah, probably. Yes. <laughs> yes. What? Yes. Like I'm so, sure it's supposed to be like one of the sandworms. You know. Surely not. Sandworms are larger snake. than that, aren't they? I don't. It swallowed a whole. F you know what? You might. You're just gonna need to read the book. <laughs> it's a grub. That's what it is. Or it's a giant elongated <laughs> penis for which we have no context. Uh, with a dude's head. It is not. <laughs> yeah. Okay. No. Okay. Let's let's let's, let's discuss oh, Jessica real quick. I'm a big fan of Jessica. A huge I fan of Jessica. There yeah. seems to be no part of her that isn't ruled by her desire to protect and nurture her son and later her daughter. She's intelligent. I mean, obviously, she's trained by the Bane Gesserit. She's beautiful. She's able to seduce the Harkonnen soldiers. She's crafty in seducing those soldiers allowing Paul to escape, and absolutely 100% devoted to her children. Her time with the Freeman, Freeman? Fremen, pardon me, uh, really exhibits that strength of character that I was so lacking with or in, in finding in all of the other characters. And, and she f finds herself needing to adapt to new ways of life, and she does so in, in spectacular fashion. Particularly, I love the scene where she consumed, and I quote, the water of life. Jessica, for me, Awesome character, perhaps best character in this book. Uh, I I do think she's the best character in this book. I'll, I, I I'll like her statement. a lot. Um, although I I'm surprised at times when she chooses to protect the Bene Gesserit, who she also hates. Yeah. She well, says that in the beginning with the Reverend Mother. She's like, I I hate you. Yeah, that you feels know, like a personal you. hate though, not like a yeah an institutional is. hate. It is, but you know, it's it's interesting that she protects at times the Bene Gesserit when it might have been better or easier if she didn't. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. I mean, but that makes her a that makes her a complicated character. She is, know? yeah. She's she's layered. I feel like I agree with everything you guys have been saying up until closer to the end of the book when it just seems that all of a sudden it gets closer to the end and then all of a sudden Jessica's really kind of aloof and less kind of concerned with the goings on. And it's, it, it just, it, it doesn't feel like her character rings true throughout the duration of the book. Like even in terms of before the book picks up and it's, it's like, it's like you were supposed to give us a girl. Remember that part where we said girl? And she's like, tough and she, and she, she, she had Paul. And mm. it, it feels like there's so many parts of her that are strong, powerful, kick-ass person who cares and loves her children. And then it feels like you get to, like, the last, like, 50 pages, and she's like, uh, uh, uh. <laughs> Oh, but that last scene, though, was so awesome. Oh, no, I know. I like, I like, 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 there's, like, like, the there's, last like, line is hers, right? I know. And that last part is, is really good. But, but I feel like the entire... Like I feel like that lead up in terms of her Pseudo final Daniel. monologue. I feel like there's a weak part. I feel like 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 she's so great, and then it, it, it slacks for a sec, and then it picks back up. And that that's the one lull in Jessica that I don't like because yeah, she's kick ass throughout the entire thing. She is by far the biggest badass of the entire group of everyone. <laughs> it, 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 except for except for that, like I think there's probably like a space of about forty pages where I just feel like she's like she's like oh well, you know what 
well, I guess Paul's gonna do what Paul's gonna do, and then like I, I just all right, I all feel right. like she's checked herself out, and then 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 afterwards, then she's she's back in the game. I I don't know. Maybe it's maybe it's just me. Maybe it's my own. I don't know, but I feel like I feel like there's that. Okay, that fair enough. Weak, I'm gonna pay attention spot. to that going forward. But on, honestly, name. though, she's she's great. Like when she's in t- talking to Stilgar for the first time, I love that part. Oh man, she's she's so cool. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Stilgar, my man, Stilgar. She's, mm. she's very in control. Yeah. For majority of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've uh, I I kind of thought of her as a combination in in character, like in temperament, a combination of Nynaeve and Swan Sanchez. Right? Okay. Yep. Uh, yeah. I was time. wondering how to draw it to the wheel of time. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. I was, I was hesitant to, to to tread upon this Aes Sedai familiarity territory, but she, yeah, okay. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not the the eyes sedainess really. Right. It's just the personality. Yeah. It's it's like the 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 need for one of those characters to to kind of be in control and manipulate the environment around her, combined with the other characters' um, uh, kind of drive toward loyalty and protection, and 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 a really nice meshing of the two. Yeah. Yeah. If nine. 90- Listen to me. That's a spoiler. Censor that. If Nynaeve was a MILF, <laughs> Jessica. Sharp. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, any other characters you guys wanted to discuss? I only really had Jessica and Paul, though I'm ready to riff on Aaliyah, the Baron. I like Duncan. I really do. Duncan Idaho. My ma- Okay. I, he was going to be my oh. favorite character until about the halfway point of the book. I, I really like. I, I didn't. Point. You didn't like Duncan. Why not? Uh, he he felt. Um, well, for one, he was fridged. But uh, for yeah. two, he fridged. just like he it just like died and shoved in the fridge. Oh, yeah. Early on. <laughs> okay. Um, fair, fair enough. He, I've never heard that term he before. He was set either. up to be this like paragon of virtue and like. And I felt like there was a really good story to tell there. Yes. Where he has this loyalty to Duetto, yep. and then he's been given this honor, brought into the Fremen fold, and I thought there could have been a really good kind of subplot about his torn loyalties between the two of them, and then it was just like, oh no, he went back to Duke Leto, and then he died. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> I think that's what I like about it. I think I like the fact that, that, at, that Duncan spends the entire time being loyal to the Duke. Yes, he recognizes that he's going to be an ambassador to the Fremen, and he gets that. And he comes back, and he is he's realized that he is broken on this planet. He, he realizes yeah. that, that everything other than the people that he serves, that he loves, other than that, the rest of his world has literally been ripped from him. And he's. Do you mean when he gets drunk? When he gets yeah, drunk, and yeah. It, it really highlights it. Yeah. You think that he's a great, badass, awesome character who should have an awesome subplot, <clears throat> and then you realize that that he is just fractured. And I think that's why I like him. Like I don't like him. Like mm-hmm. it, it's not like I'd be like, man, Duncan and me are gonna go drinking. No, I like I love him as a character, but like as a person, he's like I just feel sad for him. But I feel like that that you you expect yeah. greatness from him, and then then you then he, it's it's not taken from him. It's that he 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 just crumbles. And I I love the way that yeah, like, that, I, that part's done. I love that scene. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, I mean, we'll get to that a little later on um, when he's drunk. But I oh. felt like that was more like a stepping stone on on this subplot of him being a broken man and having his like loyalties torn apart and and seeing a, a progression with that. And then it like I really loved that one scene, and I wish there had been more of it. Maybe that's why I'm just like a little disenchanted. Yeah, yeah, with, I uh, with Duncan. You realize he's a real person for the first time, and he's not just this ide- idealized. Paragon. Yeah, yeah. it's like it's a theme in this book. Yeah, no, with Duncan Idaho, I, I had a lot of respect for Duncan Idaho reading it, uh, like reading him from the beginning, especially when we find out that he, I mean, he was sent by the Duke, Leto, into the Fremen. And he is there to earn their trust, and he is there to amalgamate with their society. And I just, I love how much balls that takes mm-hmm. to do that, to do something like that, well, to, to explore this alien society and try to earn their respect mm-hmm. any way he can. Well, you know? he's the one who says for the first time, he's like, these guys are worth something mm-hmm. when he yep. goes to Leto. He's, he's like, they're, they're pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. And then he, you know, yeah. starts to... Yeah, Going and it's, be- it's because of him that the Duke himself ends up respecting the Fremen in the way that he does. Mm-hmm. And I just, I, I loved Duncan's small but so vital role mm-hmm. in that. And, and, and seeing that human moment that he has, I just thought, I, mm-hmm. I, I was absolutely enthralled by it. I thought it was, it was awesome. And I had written that down as one of my favorite scenes originally, but it ended up being nudged out by others but it, it was awesome uh, Duncan Idaho was going to be my favorite character until I really took a step back and, and started to appreciate Jessica in the way that she deserved as well I feel but, like yeah, Duncan Idaho two thumbs up I from f- this guy I feel like Duncan should have just had one more little paragraph somewhere in between okay I, yeah. I, I, yeah that would have been like, better like, like he just he just needed just one piece to continue the momentum in whatever way Frank Herbert wanted to do it but just I, it was disjointed I just I love the character I just feel like there, like mm-hmm. he was missing a puzzle piece right in the freaking center but hey yeah hmm. that, I way to put completely it. agree with that yes on, I feel like this Sounds is a like book a where on that. Yeah. I feel like this is a book where I love the supporting characters and and like the main characters I'm less enthralled with like I love Jessica but but I like, I, I don't have a connection to Jessica. I think she's badass, and I think she's awesome. I think she's cool. But I, I, I like, like honestly, Gurney Halleck, Fuffer Howitt, Duncan Idaho. Great. Gurney Halleck is the Gurney, best. Gurney Halleck Gurney is Halleck. Oh, my. Like, we're going to get the favorite scenes in a bit. And, and like, I already know what I'm going yeah, yeah. to say about one of my. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Sounds like I have completely different ones than you guys do. Well, it's the book's um, lot I'm of done with my character ones. It's not like Amber, where it's kind of like. The book's 150 pages. Pick your three favorite scenes, yeah. and there's some overlap. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, there's only, like, five scenes in the whole book. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. But, uh, no, I mean, I don't, I don't have... I don't think I have a whole lot left as far as character notes here. I found... Stilgar. I just want to say again, Stilgar. I love Stilgar. Yep. I mean Ruark. <clears throat> I mean Stilgar. <laughs> I almost said that. <laughs> I, can, I can see the parallel there. That scene where, see where, where he steps up and he spits on the Duke's table mm-hmm. and everybody stands up and they're ready to start fighting because they perceive this insult we're, we're, and it's like, no, 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 listen, this is, this is just a moment of, this is a moment of respect. It's, I don't know, it, it was very easy for me to see and appreciate things that may or may not have influenced Jordan's knack for, uh, 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 hilarity via 
the vehicle of social dissonance. You know, I just... Yeah, like cultural misunderstanding. Yep, yep, exactly it. And how it's just, it's, it's in a way funny when you realize you, you have the tools to put it in context. Like, I, I, I really liked it. Stilgar brought me a few laughs. He brought me a few uh, cheers. I liked him. All right, I, I have a, yeah, a, I a quick kind of question. Well, two, two parts of a quick question. Did you guys like Floyd Rafa and Vladimir Harkonnen as villains? And the second part of the question oh. is, is, do you consider the Emperor a villain? Yeah. Yes um, and yes. Okay. Yes yes. So, for the first half of that, I liked Fade more than Vladimir. Uh, I thought Vladimir was a little too, um, like, he, he, he was a little too much of a caricature. Too much mustache twirling evil. Just purely <laughs> evil. Yeah. I, I wanted a, a little more of a dynamic, uh, complicated villain. And Fade Routha was better for that um, than, than Vladimir was. The Emperor, I do think, was a villain. And I liked him the most out of the three because oh. he was at a remove for so much of it, and there was a question in the air of, especially through Princess Irulan's um, uh, epigraphs, epigraphs and, and her musings on her father, where there was a question. We know from the narrative that the Emperor has betrayed House Atreides, but from Princess Irulan's point of view, he's a complicated guy, and maybe he's not really all that bad. And it's not till the end that we see his true colors, so to speak. And I liked that about him. <clears throat> okay. Alright. Yeah, I mean... Yeah. The, the, yeah. I, I pretty much agree with everything you just said. Do you <laughs> find that... I definitely right. feel like... Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, I feel like I, I, I have I, a hard time seeing the emperor really as a villain because I don't see anything that he did as as evil because he was kind of like you know what honestly we need spice out of this freaking planet let's just get her done um like the baron's a, a jackass get her done. fine like I, I just I, I felt he wasn't a bad guy I felt that he was just uh. that, that, that the, the things that he did wouldn't be the choices that we would make, but he's like, look, all right, we've got a trusted advisor, Thuffer Howitt. You know what? Go up there. I want you to k just just kill this duke, kill this meddlesome duke, rid him of, rid me of him. I, I felt like like is that a is that a mean thing to do? Should you not do that? Yes, but I didn't. I didn't see him as a bad guy for so that. So what? I, I just I don't know. I, I where I do see him as a bad guy, guy is. Where I do see him as a bad guy is the evil he enabled and the evil he um, engendered by supporting Baron Harkonnen in this. Mm -hmm. He knew what kind of people the Harkonnens were. He knew what sort of subjugation they put their native populations through, the, the pogroms, the torture, the, the oppression. And he said, yes, keep doing that, mm -hmm. essentially. He said it keep committing atrocities on native populations and that's a problem to me that's why i think uh, ultimately he is a villain rather than like and, and that, that question that princess irulan raises in 
in her interpretations of her father in the epigraphs is, is he doing all of this because there is some greater morality and responsibility upon him? And by the end, we find out, no, this is essentially, at its root, money-driven. Mm -hmm. Well, it makes sense to me because the emperor, from her epigraphs, is so distant from anybody else. Human connections are not really a thing yeah. for him. He is, t you know, superior to everyone. So he's not connected to his daughter, to her mother, to his concubines, to anybody else. So it makes sense that morality would not really be a thing for him in the same way because he doesn't need people. He doesn't care about people. He is his own. You know, whereas, like, the Harkonnens, I felt like Fade was more developed than the other three, including the... I'm, I'm including the Emperor in, in that. Um, he has a lot more... You have a lot more in his head, and you have a lot more dimensions, where he's, he's thinking of the good and the bad, and you know that he's aware, at least a little bit. The Emperor does not seem aware of the consequences on people as people. Yeah, okay, I can agree with that. Yeah. And Harkonnen is just so caricatured yeah. that he's just evil because he's evil. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's, there doesn't seem to be a greater reason for the Baron. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, other than like the motivation yeah, for enough. revenge. Uh, I just, I feel like with the Emperor, I feel like he's not... I feel like he's like a hurricane. A hurricane isn't evil. It just destroys a whole lot of sh and morality isn't an issue. It's like it's like it's like oh a population was subjugated. Oh, okay. He just he just it's not that he's it's not that he's a bad guy. It's he has bad characteristics that we don't like. But I don't think he's a bad guy. He's self-serving. That's not bad. Most people are self-serving. Most people try to not do it over top of other people. But he just he just doesn't care about others. It just it just seemed like he was detached, not evil. I don't know. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. Okay, oh, yeah. sorry. Maybe I'm just re I'm reading so back. My apologies. Yeah, it's okay. I mean, I no, it means you to agree. me, while mm -hmm. yes, like all human beings are at a certain point self-interested. Mm -hmm. um, it's it's the magnitude of that self-interest. Uh, when it becomes selfishness or or the self-interest starts having really spanning negative effects on other people that to me that like crosses the line into you're a bad person yeah um, and that's why I that's why I see the emperor as yeah. a villain I'm absolutely yeah I, I'm with I'm with you on this one I think <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah but uh, do we have any more kind of character notes, or shall we go no. into, like, I, I have a, I have one miscellaneous point to bring up that, that may be a little bit of a discussion, or, or we may decide not to tread there. Cause I have five, but they're mostly just throwaway uh, comments, so let's start with yours. Okay, so I'm going to read a quote to you. Okay. And, and if we want to take this and run with it in discussion, we can. If we decide not to, that's fine. This quote is, a leader, you see 
is one of the things that distinguishes a mob from a people. He maintains the level of individuals. Too few individuals, and a people reverts to a mob. Do we want to discuss this? <laughs> right now, here, in, uh... Is what, this something that AK Outlaw wants to get into, or do we want to leave that for maybe like forum discussion? For like on its own Facebook episode or, <laughs> or series of episodes? <laughs> um, I would say no, because just because is... I still have like five miscellaneous points and favorite scenes to get out of the way, and we're like an hour and a half in or more. But I mean, if you guys want to <laughs> poke the bear, proverbially I mean, speaking, it, I, I'm okay with just leaving it at. Uh, this is a very exigent statement for our uh, cultural existence in 2020. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Alan, so. Alan's biting his nails. He's like, um, I'll, what words come out of my face? <laughs> oh, yeah. I, yeah, I just, um, I, got, I got nothing to add to it. I just, uh, uh. <laughs> not, not so on this episode. Not on this episode. If you want to discuss this with us, Check us out on Facebook. <laughs> Inking Out Loud has a Facebook group. Check us out on Twitter, at IOL Podcast. Uh, you know. Yeah. <laughs> we can have discussions there. And we I do have strong opinions, time but on, I mean, on, like... On I... the Dune episode. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. Heading into my miscellaneous points here, then. Just a few throwaway things. Number one, I've mentioned before that whenever I learn a new word, I'm going to make a point of bringing it onto the podcast. This week, I did learn a new word for the first time in a little while. The word gestalten, plural form of oh, gestalt. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah. I love that word. Yes, meaning, a, <laughs> and I looked this up, of course, ready to bring this up, meaning a configuration or a pattern having specific properties that cannot be derived from the summation of its component parts, a unified whole. I learned that. And I also didn't realize it was pronounced Gestalten until I actually looked it up and it actually spelled it out phonetically for me. And I was like, oh, God, thank God I dodged that bullet of totally anglicizing that one. Um, <laughs> I didn't like the character of the Reverend Mother Gaius Helen Mohayam oh, so much. Whatever, yeah. yeah Mohayam. She had some cool lines, though. I love this one. Grave this on your memory, lad. A world is supported by four things. She held up four big knuckled fingers. The learning of the wise, the justice of the great, the prayers of the righteous, and the valor of the brave. Like, I that was that. cool. I kind of got like... Yeah, that was a good line. Little like goosebumps in the back of my neck. Like, I kind of want to pick up my electric guitar for the first time in years and just write heavy metal riffs for each of those songs. Like, something <laughs> aesthetic and indescribable in those words. I just, I, I really, really liked mm -hmm. Yeah, this is this is a, a style thing uh, with Frank Herbert that I, I don't come across super often, but he has the ability to write quotes for his characters that feel like they have the true weight of wisdom behind them. And it's something that I, I think about more with Gene Wolfe than anybody else. Uh, there are not many authors who can pull off that weightiness to characters uh sometimes it comes off as just like a platitude or whatever but like sure but there's a real weight to what uh you know what some of herbert's characters say yeah 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 i mean what delicious abandon the sleep of a child like there's something about that line that jessica has when she's watching her son sleep in that moment and those words those what eight words there 
I just uh, there are there are certain moments that really did drive home, mm-hmm. and I and I liked them. Um, going forward, though, and I apologize for how dumb this particular miscellaneous point is, but I believe I now have the context to appreciate a small Easter egg that was placed in the most popular and successful video game of all time, Grand Theft Auto V. Referencing Dune, there's a particular mission when you can play and you can replay it as much as you want in GTA Online called the Los Santos Connection. It's one of the longest and most complex missions in that game. There's one stage, the second stage, where one teammate has to cover the other teammate who hacks into a laptop to discover a hidden password. This password is always a random choice of four or five options. One of those options to unlock the hidden password is W-O-R-M-S-I-G-N. Worm sign. Nice. And I always thought to myself, well, that's kind of cool. That's a neat word. You know, that sounds like so ominous and infectious and, and, and malignant. I was like, that's cool. So when I read it in this book, I had a serious moment of, oh my god, where have I heard this moment before? And it took me like three days to actually place it. So I just thought it was really, really cool to see just how far the influence of Dune has gone in other forms of media. You know? Yeah. Cool. Oh, for sure. So, uh, so on, on that note, uh, if anybody has ever played uh, the Kingdom Rush video games, it's a tower defense. Uh, Kingdom Rush? No, I can't say I have. Mostly, mostly a mobile platform, although they're available on Steam now. And I think, I think they're available online if you just Google it as like a free Flash game on a few different websites. But they are famous for working in science fiction and fantasy references. There is... Uh, I mean, for instance, there's one, like, mission where you're in the jungle, and, you know, so... It's a tower defense, right? There's, like, a couple paths, and you have to prevent any enemies from getting to the exit by building towers and killing them all. But in this jungle mission, there's, like, a hut that you can hire spear maidens from, and they have names, spear like, and Nyla, and Chiad, and, and <laughs> Sovin, and stuff like that. And I'm one on of the screen heroes... Screen look on Alan's face right now. <laughs> yeah, one of Sorry, that's a real, another Wheel of Time a, reference. Is a, a, a like a sand warrior who can summon like straight up Aielmen, like veiled spearmen, and when you move him around, he says, "Till shade is gone," you know things like that. Really? But there is an achievement on one of the desert levels called Muad'Dib, where you there's like at periodic points in the mission, a sandworm pops up out of the sand, and there's like worm sign under the sand and you have to like move your troops away otherwise it'll eat them and the achievement is for like not losing any troops to the sandworm <laughs> like <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome i even saw a meme this week that was supposedly said dune 2020 first trailer and it was a mock-up of a huge gorgeous trailer it was a semi-tractor trailer that had fallen over and spilled sand all over the highway <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah it's great oh. it's good stuff i love how it brings everybody together <laughs> Uh, my last miscellaneous point here, and I'm going to get a little sciency, a little nerdy on this one. When when okay. when Paul first like ingests the the, the pure heavier spice given by uh, Chani, I, I quoted here: "Awareness flowed into that timeless stratum where he could view time, sensing the available paths, the winds of the future." the winds of the past, the one-eyed vision of the past, the one-eyed vision of the present, and the one-eyed vision of the future, yeah. all combined in a trinocular vision that permitted him to see time become space. I love this stuff. First up, trinocular vision, literally translated, I think, three lenses. There's, there's monocular vision that prey animals have, you know, they see on both sides of the head, wider viewing angle. 
but depth is lost. As humans, we are, we are predator animals, we have binocular vision, two eyes that overlap in the same field, granting us depth perception, another dimension, the third dimension. And of course, Herbert extrapolates from this, granting proverbial eyes from the past, the, pe the present, and the future, trinocular vision, granting another, another added dimension, time. Which, of course, is exactly the context of the scene. We have Paul thinking about the concept of time itself. And Herbert makes sure to carve this in stone with the last line of that exact section. Seeing time become space. Three words, mm -hmm. separated only by hyphens. Like, clearly a reference to the concept of space-time. And how other civilizations might try and classify it or quantify it. I love this stuff. I love this stuff. So I just had I, to draw I, a point there. I want to say on that note, he also goes into ecology with kinds. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I the ecologist, loved, the planet, I loved that. The planetologist. Where he, yeah, he goes into detail, though, about the impact of creatures on other creatures and on yes. the planet. And, <clears throat> and balance. And that was, I liked yeah. that. Uh, yeah, like mm -hmm. when Liet's talking yeah. to I his wish, dog. I wish, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. And I wish more series had stuff like that. Yeah. Where they're <laughs> actually stuff. thinking about the impact. Right. I live for this stuff. So that's the end of my miscellaneous points. I'm ready to go into my favorite scenes, unless any of you guys have any other miscellaneous points you want to throw out of yes. the way first. I, I, oh, sorry, go, go ahead. I have one miscellaneous point, but it, it's, it's a 10-second rant, so you go ahead. Okay, so you said Gestalten, and your definition was completely different from the one that I knew. Was it? Turns out there are multiple... Yeah. There's one that's more in psychology, and then there's another one that's more of the the moment of clarity, like a gestalt, yeah. where you have the aha moment. Like the eureka that's the moment. That's one that I knew. Yeah. That's the really? one that I knew. And then you you said that other definition. I was like, oh wow. So I looked it up. Yeah. There's a whole psychology thing. Yeah. That's <laughs> why I didn't I didn't uh, put it in a nutshell afterwards because I'm still a little confused as to the entire definition if it wasn't evident by my monotone when I was reading the definition earlier. <laughs> yeah, so I guess there's more than just one and then Yeah, I yeah. I knew that word as the definition Lauren brought up like yeah. that it's a, a, a like eureka a, moment. A moment of clarity where you understand something. It's like a foundation yeah, no, of understanding. Uh, uh, a configuration or a pattern having specific properties that cannot be derived from the summation of its component parts, i.e. a unified whole. I feel like both of your definitions hmm. overlap an awful lot. It's just that they're looking at different sides yeah, from the same yeah, coin. Yeah, there's a similarity yeah. there, yeah. for sure. Yeah, yeah. I saw the word, wrote it down, uh, and I was like... It's been a few weeks since I brought something, a new word to the podcast. Might have been like 40 or 50 weeks. I'm going to bring a new so, word in. So, Alan, uh, what's your rant here? <laughs> he, he finds out his son is dead, and he's like, oh, let's, I, I guess I'll talk about that for a paragraph and a half. And then nothing happens. Yeah. Like, like, I, I remember that's, why, that's part of why he is not a... He's not a character you can sympathize with. No. He's just a, a figurehead. He's, he's, a, he's an automaton. Yeah, yeah like, like when I read this book the first time and I wasn't a dad, I read that and I was like, I was like, oh, okay, I, I, I guess. And now as a dad, I read that and if like, like obviously, like if if I hyperimpose myself in a situation where I had the loss of a child, it would take up more than a f paragraph and a half of character development. <laughs> like it just it 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 it's, yeah. it's such a 
Like, like he talks for for pages about he, how he eats food, and that's that's magical. And his son dies, and he's like, oh my God. like, oh. <laughs> I'm gonna dwell on this for all of forty seconds. Sorry. Yeah. It's a- so I'm gonna guess that's not one of Alan's three favorite scenes. Shock. I know. <laughs> <laughs> right. Shall we go into them? <laughs> yeah, let's let's do it. Rob, kick All right. Off. Let's let's just go 3333222211111 as we normally yeah. do. So my third favorite, our first glimpse of the worms. Mm. Mm. The way the sand shifts and the duke jumps into action. He's ordering his men to abandon the crawler in an effort to save their lives. The view from overhead as the worm swallows that entire thing. Just so Freaking cool. I cannot wait to see how this is delivered on the big screen. You know, I'm going to go and see it on the big screen, probably for this exact scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. I, I will definitely agree and say, like, uh, some of the visuals in this book have me much more interested in seeing the Dune movie now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm a big sucker for spectacle. So. Mm-hmm. Okay. Lauren, your third favorite scene? Okay. I did criticize it earlier, but I liked that opening scene with um, the Reverend Mother. Mm. And I, it definitely made me interested in the Bene Gesserit. I want to know more. I absolutely want to know more. I hope <laughs> it's... Apparently it's written not well, but... It, <laughs> maybe it'll be interesting. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's useful information to have, and if you... Uh, read it and then you imagine what it would be like it's a lot more interesting than actually reading it and having the picture painted for you if that makes sense but yeah I like the idea of these yeah Mm -hmm. these I don't know the the women are interesting the Reverend Mother and Jessica and their past and she doesn't know where she came from she was raised by I guess you could call them almost monks Mm -hmm. yeah sort of (laughs) sort of in this yeah. school, where she's raised to see every detail of everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I sort of criticized. I sort of criticized it earlier myself. This exact same scene, but I still, you know, I can appreciate it. Uh, I, I really actually did, and I didn't bring this up earlier, but I, I kind of enjoy this kind, this question proposed to to Paul as part of his test as to the nature of humanity versus animalistic. Uh, instinct with with the test of pain when he puts his hand into the little box and and what what divides humans from animals mm-hmm. in terms of being able to ignore instinct like pain mm-hmm. and, and withdrawal mm-hmm. so I, I I had expected that to be a, a bit bigger of a theme going forward which I didn't mm-hmm. quite pick up on I don't know if I just missed it or if it just wasn't there but I mean the scene still interested me enough to continue with the book so. I still have to say I ultimately enjoyed it. I know I criticized it a bit earlier, but I actually did enjoy it. So, ultimately. Uh, Alan, what about you? Your third favorite? Um, My third favorite would probably be the scene where they're all having the formal dinner together. And it's going through all of the kind of different... Mm. I don't want to say political, but all the different facets of culture that's there and the, the like right at the beginning how they talk about like like oh like why do they have the smuggler there people are going to be like people are going to identify the fact that like well why is the smuggler there and and like like well part of it is because like we're going to need a route for escape but part of it is because smuggling is such a key important piece of existence on this planet like i i, I like just little yeah. bits mm-hmm. like that and i just like the dialogue and paul being like so it's they're cannibals 
Because uh, this is where Paul uh, is like having his little. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like 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 he's like bantering with like my my son cuts a garment and you claim it cut fits your measure whatever that that line is from that like I just I I loved the dynamic and how they talk about like Atreides battle code like there there there's so many different layers mm-hmm. about that that you can read that scene a bunch of different times and just pick up different little pieces of nuance in there I, I that's that's definitely why one of my one of my favorite scenes and I'm not sure why I put it third but it's one of my three favorite yeah okay. Well, my third favorite scene was that that first confrontation between Jessica and the Shadout Mapes. Uh, I I I loved their little interplay there and what it meant for Jessica's character, kind of analyzing in the moment, trying to suss out deeper meanings and and like cultural norms for for the Fremen just based on the, the tiniest little, uh, you know, body language cues and, and word choices. It was a really fun scene to me. I, I thought that did a lot to establish the tone of the story going forward because their tests and tests of logic and wit are a big, big theme in this book. And that was the first real test that I thought, uh, I mean, there's, you know, there's the, the pain test with, with Paul at the beginning, but that was a little different. It was a little more one-sided internal for, for him. Whereas this was one of the first of many between members of the Atreides family and the Fremen, and, and as they're slowly brought into the culture and learning about it. Yeah. All right. Uh, second favorite. My second favorite scene was uh, Duke Leto talking to his son proposing this recruitment of the Fremen, the the vulnerability that Paul gets to see in his father, the plan not to allow Jessica to realize that he doesn't, after all, really suspect her, how much it hurts his father to treat his mother with that kind of coldness. And it's a very, very personal moment for these two. I particularly appreciate the small detail that Herbert gives us right here. The metallic threads in the hawk symbol above his father's breast glistened as the duke shifted his position i couldn't help but think of the duke leto himself as that same hawk seeing so much from high above and hunting necessary targets for him and his family paul says to him you're just tired father and he says i am tired morally tired and this this i just i don't know something about this scene really really hit home with me and i was totally invested in both of them at this moment so that's what, that was my second favorite scene. Okay. Lauren? Uh, I think for me it was probably the Thopter scene with Duke Leto driving. Mm. And they see the worm for the first time, and he really, we find out who the Duke really is. He doesn't, like, they have a ton of spice down there, like a fortune of it. And he is more concerned with the men. And you really see the anguish for him at the possibility of losing his people, who he feels the responsibility to protect. Yeah. Whom he's just met, really, for all intents and purposes. Who he's just met, yeah. Yeah. I thought that was important to the character building. Amen. Honestly, it would have been great to see more of Duke Leto. Yeah, gotta gotta make it a tragic death. <laughs> it was tragic, yeah. <laughs> Alan, what about you? 
we thank you, Stilgar, for your gift of your bo- for the gift of your body's water. With Duncan Idaho and meeting Stilgar mm. for the first time. When oh. he just leans forward and he spits on the table. And you're just like, whoa. And then Duncan is like, hold on. <laughs> that, that, I just, that, that paragraph and a half right there. That's, I don't even need to explain why. Because you guys, it's, I, I'm it's, watching it's all the reactions. You're like, all oh. the rafters going, hang on. <laughs> yeah. That's Everybody wrong. calm. Everybody chill. That's, uh, that's, that's number two for me right there. Nice, yeah. That cultural dissonance. I love it. I love it. That was Ugh. good. That was good. Yeah. So my my second favorite scene was Duncan's drunken uh, kind of rampage. Uh, <laughs> it, you know, breaking in, like crashing things around, and, and and there's there's that like that element of almost uh, like slapstick humor to it. Where there's you know there's a drunken man right making a fool of himself, but but the undercurrent of it, and as the scene develops, you start realizing, oh my gosh, this is really tragic. What what is happening? Not not only to Duncan, but to all of the you know House Atreides, all of these people who've been uprooted, and what this new inhospitable world there uh, they've been given, and and not just given, but they've been forced to adopt. You know it, what it's doing to them. So it's, it's a really cleverly written scene, in my opinion, because it's doing two different things, both of them very, very interesting. Awesome. Awesome. I just had a real forehead-slapping moment that I'm going to be talking about during our final draft. But before I get there, I am going to give you guys my number one favorite scene in the book. And I'm really glad that none of you guys actually took this one already, because I was totally... This, for me, is hands down the, the highest moment that uh the, I said the highest note that Herbert hit with his character development at least for our main character with Paul and that was Paul's eulogy for Jamis James Dang it. <laughs> all right I did take it thank too. you how heartbreaking <laughs> and poignant that is the way he starts reluctant I was a friend of Jamis Paul whispered he felt tears burning his eyes forced more volume into his voice Jamis taught me that when you kill you pay for it. I wish I'd known Jameis better. And he sheds tears for the dead, which mightily impresses the Fremen who witness it. It's such a moving scene. Again, in, in this book, we still have this, we still do have these few moments of coming of age. I'll be, I'll be in this way, it, in this context, a morbid one, killing another man, which we do see of a, lo- a lot of an epic fantasy in, in sci-fi. So this, this moment broke my heart and I actually for a minute, was able to sympathize with Paul. And that's why yeah, I like this I, scene so much. And that's why it's my I mean, number one. I'll just get mine out of the way here, too, because it's the same scene. And I, I basically agree with everything Rob just said there. It, it was, I think, the most emotionally charged moment in the book. It was beautifully written. There was a lot of, uh, I thought, good symbolism in how uh, people were taking items from this this pile of his belongings and you just knew that Paul was going to take the battle set you knew he was going to take the instrument because Paul had had previously you know learned from Gurney Halleck who is this great musician and then discovering that Jameis was himself a musician and that would tie him emotionally and kind of spiritually to the memory of Jameis even though in life Jameis was you know, and and so it, it 
it made the death of a jerk into a touching moment, and I really liked that. Sweet. Lauren, your favorite? Oh, I've, I've still been mulling this over, but I think it might be the scene where the Reverend Mother dies mm. and mm. gives herself to Jessica along with all of the Reverend Mothers before her. And at the same time, Jessica is having this internal battle, battle about being pregnant and what this is going to do to her daughter which of course it is pretty drastic takes her from a child to an adult in the womb gonna not spoil yeah. anything but did that remind you of another science fiction series we've read perhaps yeah. no one's talked about Stephen R. Donaldson I'm like yeah okay oh. I didn't figure it's going that way oh. oh I didn't even think about that oh my gosh yeah yeah I get to see Lauren's mind get blown yeah. <laughs> oh, it's, it's bad. It's bad. Yeah. It's happening. We'll 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 cover the series that I'm talking about on this podcast at some point in the future. So we'll we'll get it's, to tie that that back. But it's worse in a way. Uh, oh, it's it's way more traumatic. Yeah. <laughs> but this is pretty traumatic, and especially when you meet Aaliyah later, and you, the poor creepy thing creepy. is not a child and is alienating everybody around her, and she's she's upset about it, but she's so so much more mature than that that she can't be upset about it oh mm -hmm. yeah yeah i don't know it was drastic okay. for me i can't believe jessica did that at the same time she had to i don't know it's traumatic mm -hmm. <laughs> all right alan your favorite scene my dude my favorite scene is when gurney halleck reunites with jessica and Jessica's like, oh, I'm going to get to see Gurney again. It's going to okay. be great. Okay. And <laughs> okay. Gurney okay. is literally like, like, I will f kill you. How dare you still be alive? Are you Like, how could your shade still still be existing in the universe? And 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 what was that? What I can't remember. I don't have the book open in front of me. But Paul's line, like, like I will still hold love for you while your blood pools on the ground, or whatever it is. That moment there, he's like, he's like, I, yeah. I will love you, even after I've killed you. That that part in there, yeah, that had held emotional weight for me on there, because. And, and, then, and then Gurney afterwards being like, you gotta kill me, guys. I feel and they're just like, what's wrong with you, you <laughs> idiot? Like, I just, I loved the, the whole, the whole <laughs> fact that they were like, they're like, you're still always our friend, regardless of if you make dumb decisions. And I just, I loved the fact that there were so many charged emotions coming from so many different directions. And it balanced itself all out so that right at the end, it's like if you had a tempest in a teapot and then all of a sudden everything just settled majestically mm -hmm. and just the way that it bounces mm -hmm. right at the end i loved how well it was done it was my favorite scene by far sweet all right fair enough nice yeah it's a good pick uh i i think that brings us to the end of our discussion over two hours of discussion <laughs> i'm glad time. yeah um but uh we still have the final draft to do so we do. rob do you want to kick it off i'll kick us off so <clears throat> Prior to starting this episode, I was drinking, well, prior to and during this episode, 
for the first half at least, I finished off the last of this can here, and um, I did give an audible groan at one point when I tasted it. Alan, I saw you clear in there, and I was like, oh, God, what... I was not looking forward to this one. I saw it and I figured I had to try it just because it sounded so weird and I'm I regret that I did. This here is a <laughs> ginger ale alcoholic beverage from Canadian Club, which is a whiskey company. And um so it's basically it was basically whiskey and ginger ale in a can. Like pre-mixed. Um, pre-mixed. Well, here's the thing. It literally says mixed and ready on the can, right? Okay. But literally 10 minutes ago and I saw it, and I had a little forehead-slapping moment I had because everything in Canada here is also printed in, in English and in French on the back. The French translation for mixed and ready is literally, and I quote, mélange prêt à boire. So there's mélange. <laughs> literally the word mélange staring at me in the face for the vast majority of this episode, and I hadn't realized it <laughs> until right before we went to the final draft. <laughs> As far as the way it tastes, it was disgusting. I really regret drinking it. And I hesitate to say that if you gave it to one of the Fremen, he would pour it out onto the sand. <laughs> Excellent. That's my review of so Canadian what, what Club Mixed and Ready what, Ginger Ale. Ugh. Oh, it was called Mixed and Ready. Yeah, it's called Mixed and Ready. Yeah, Canadian Club okay, okay. Mixed and Ready Ginger Ale. And I also had a one particularly one uh, Clamato Caesar. In the middle there, but I also really crapped on that quite a bit in an earlier episode, so I didn't want to admit that. So on that note, Alan, what are you drinking? <laughs> um, I, uh, I I miss what you guys are drinking now, but I, I, um, what I'm drinking right now, um, I went uh, up to up to the family cottage on Manitoulin Island recently, and there are two breweries up there that I went to. Oh, I've to. been there. Um, oh yeah, it's great, and one of them is I've been there. From the Manitoulin Brewing Company. It is called Cup and Saucer, and it's an English ale, and it was delightful. Ooh. And then I went to the Manitoulin Island Brewing Company. You can tell that they get points for originality on their name here. And this one is called Split <laughs> Rail, and this is a uh, it's a gold pilsner. And they're Ooh. both delicious. This one here, it literally looks like they printed out the label on on their printer on a dot matrix. And... and <laughs> <laughs> but it's uh, of the of the two of this versus the English. I I prefer this one, and they were marvelous drinks, and 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 I hope other people get to sample them because honestly, good examples of people making booze up on an island. <laughs> nice, both of nice. them sound quite refreshing. Yeah. Nice. So Lauren, what are you drinking? I am drinking Sunfade from La Cumbre Brewing Company. It is a hazy IPA. And La Crumbre is in Albuquerque. Yeah. It was it was pretty good. It's all right. fade. I just Isn't wanted to do the sun. Yeah. yeah. We we obviously pick on theme. Right, right. But there was one we couldn't yeah. get. Okay, sorry, sorry. Go ahead, Jerry. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> I I appreciate the I sun didn't fade. Know was this it? beer existed? I I wasn't able to swing a trade like for it. it. Because uh, I I just didn't have the time. I didn't know it existed until about three days before we were originally planning on on uh, recording. We we did have to delay this particular episode recording a little bit. Hopefully, it's getting to you guys as listeners on time. But uh, Bottle Logic Brewing Company in California does you know they they have a very highly regarded series of barrel aged beers. You know barley wines, stouts, porters, things like that. And last year, they released a barrel-aged pumpkin spice stout 
called The Spice Must Flow. <laughs> and I I wish I had known about it beforehand because I would have I would have traded for a bottle of it and, and brought it on, but uh, but instead today I had to make do, and I'm drinking a mango hard seltzer. I don't know if I've ever brought a hard seltzer on before. Uh, I mean, mango it was, hard it was tasty. It, it it certainly tasted like a mango hard seltzer. Sounds like it. Uh, <laughs> But uh, th- this was... Says Lauren just takes it and slams it. Well, it was it was empty already. I was trying. Um, this, this is the, the mango hard seltzer that the, the Benny Gesserit feed their their uh, charges, apparently, because it's called Things for Your Head. <laughs> oh, as a Mentat, particularly. Oh, yes. Yeah. Mentats, yeah. too. We didn't even talk about the Mentat. Yeah. Whoops. But, uh, That's pretty cool, though. Yeah, so this, I like this has been episode 83 of the Inking Out Loud podcast. And I hope it's 83, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm fairly certain it is. <laughs> uh, anyway, next up, we will be diving right back into the Cosmere with Words of Radiance. Uh, we will be covering the prologue and part one of Words of Radiance, so keep an eye out for that. Check us out on Patreon if you want to support the podcast. It's patreon.com slash inkingoutloud. We got a whole bunch of you know fun bonus episodes, monthly newsletter, monthly short fiction, stuff like that. You can get early access to episodes. So check us out there. As always, I am your host, Drew McCaffrey. With me is my co-host, Rob Santos. Yep. And our special guest, Alan Keeler. Hey. And our other special guest, Lauren McCaffrey. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening, and we will catch you next time. Bye, everyone.